And now the big, big, big one. Best picture of the year. Somewhere out there, five tense, nervous producers. And from what I know of producers, they're biting each other's nails. To present the award, here's one of the fairest ladies of them all, Miss Julie Andrews. Before I read the nominations, Bob, may I say just a word? Well, it's getting late, Julie. I know, I know, but I did want to express the admiration for us all for the manner in which you've conducted this program tonight. Such ease, such wit, such... Um, Take uh, your time, Julie. But you, uh, you just told me to hurry, Bob. Well, well, keep going. I'll see if I can cut a commercial. <laughs> We've seen excerpts from the five films nominated for Best Picture. And now for the Best Picture. May I have the envelope, please? Thank you. The winner is, in the heat of the night, Walter Mitch. African-American Philadelphia police detective Virgil Tibbs is arrested on suspicion of murder by Bill Gillespie, the racist police chief of tiny Sparta, Mississippi. After Tibbs proves not only his own innocence, but that of another man, he joins forces with Gillespie to track down the real killer. Their investigation takes them through every social level of town, with Tibbs making enemies as well as unlikely friends as he hunts for the truth. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 40th episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time, reviewing the films and their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the lady who recently got back from the Sunshine State for some Metallica, Marvel, and mixed drinks, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you, and how was California? It was, it was fine. The weather was fairly nice, so... Good times, lots of... I mean, Metallica literally took over the city of San Francisco for like four days. There was just everywhere you went, there was just people in the Metallica t-shirts. And it was like... It was almost like being at Disney World. <laughs> and plus, you got to see uh, Spider-Man No Way Home while you were at it too. So you were able mm -hmm. to feed your, your hunger for the MCU. So that must have been cool. Oh, yeah. It was really nice movie theater too. Oh, oh really? Oh yeah, awesome. Well, well, I, I'm glad that you got to do all that for sure. And uh, you know, judging by the the pictures that you shared with us, it looked like it was really a super super fun time. And mm -hmm. on, on the other, the lady who's soup à l'oignon, I will have to try someday. Zan Sprouse. Hey, Zan, how are you? Nick, the secret is just a splash of cherry when you're ready to serve it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that. And I don't care how long somebody tells you it takes to caramelize onions. Give it 30 more minutes than they tell you. <laughs> Most recipes will tell you things like, you know, saute until the, the until the onions are caramelized. About 30 minutes. No, no, no. Bullshit. That is not true. <laughs> did you have to stock up on air freshener after, after making it? You, I did. I lit different candles in different rooms just to get the onions. I mean, it smelled delicious, but it definitely lingered. But yes, you do not want to rush the caramelization process. So you don't want to do it over high heat. You want to do it over medium heat. And it takes a long time. And I would recommend like a Vidalia onion, something that has a little bit of sweetness. Not a sweet onion, but like a white, a white or a Vidalia. Because 
adding your own sugar to speed up the caramelization process, just that's that's for cheaters. I'll just admit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, take notes, budding chefs, for those who want to make onion soup, indeed. And and I guess it was good that we also got to talk a little bit about food since, uh, you know, we are within the holiday period where a lot of great food will be served. So I think it was a nice little parenthesis there. So, of course, ladies, today we are reviewing In the Heat of the Night, our last episode for 2021, directed by Norman Jewison, whom our listeners might know for such films as Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck, Rollerball, and Justice for All, and many more. This was based on the novel by the same name, written by John Ball. The screenplay was by Sterling Siliphant, and the score was by a certain Quincy Jones. And this, to print today's money, this movie cost $15 million to make and made $190 million at the box office, opening on August the 2nd of 1967 and has a runtime of roughly one hour and 50 minutes. I guess we could also say this is first of what can be considered the Inspector Tibbs trilogy, as obviously following this film we would get They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and The Organization, both starring Sidney Poitier. And of course, it would later spawn the TV show In the Heat of the Night with Howard Rollins as Tibbs and Carol O'Connor as Bill Gillespie in, between 1988 and 93, and we then had four TV films in 94. So, Zan, starting with you, what were your general impressions on, shall we say, the first chapter, what, what we could probably call the, the Inspector Tibbs trilogy? This is probably the best movie we've ever talked about. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is, is absolutely wonderful because it tells you so many things so subtly it's not overt in your face you're left to draw your own conclusions you figure these things out on your own and you really get to know the characters from this from them just doing their everyday life and i think that's a great way of unfolding your characters you you don't give us a lot of backstory you don't give us a lot of I don't, you know, I talk a lot about sometimes I'd like to hear more about this character, but I don't necessarily mean I need an origin story. Um, this movie, very unfortunately, there was a, you know, back in my less enlightened days, I would think, oh, thank God this is in the past when I would watch this movie. And unfortunately, no, it's not. I'm too, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too uh, aware of the fact that this kind of crap is happening all the time. And I don't just mean white cops giving black cops a hard time, or I don't just mean the rampant racism of the Southern United States. But I, I also, I mean the, how do I want to, how do I want to put this here? This, I want to tread lightly because I'm, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here, but the ineptitude and corruption of some police forces of, oh, okay, there's a black guy at the station. He's the murderer. Oh, wait, no, it's not him. Oh, okay, there's a pickpocket with the guy's wallet. Okay, he's the murderer. Just that utter refusal to actually do any police work and just let the easy things that fall into your lap be your answer. And that's something we see so much of the time. Anybody who's a fan of ours that's also a fan of crime podcasts, you just listen to some of these and you wonder, how are these police officers still employed? Um, evidence is right there. Evidence is overlooked. When, you're, when they're interviewed by even the, just the podcasters, they say, well, we didn't think anything of that. Or, you know, you think about a case like the, Mes the West Memphis Three, where 
<laughs> a really good suspect was one of the stepfathers of one of the victims. And when he started hearing there was bite evidence, had all of his teeth removed and put dentures in. Things like that, that nobody just, that people just decide to ignore because they have easy suspects and an easy answer right in front of them. And that is going on to this day too. We have a, we have too many police departments throughout the country. Again, not all of them. I'm not trying to make some sort of blanket statement about police. Um, but we have too many people just willing to ignore, not, not just ignore evidence, but refuse to do any actual police work. That's the thing. Mr. Tibbs does actual police work. You know, he says, I need the following things. And he lists this minute long laundry list of things he needs to examine this body. And they just look at him in the alley and say, yeah, he died. He died, you know, about an hour ago. We're good enough for me. Let's go. He looks under fingernails. He looks at the car. He looks all over the place. And we have these other police officers that can't even get off their ass to fix the air conditioner or the, the gate to the, to the, to the desks. So all of this stuff is still going on. So that's incredibly depressing, but this movie is so wonderful at not just showing you the racism, not just showing you how terrible the South can be, how terrible racists can be, how murderous racists can be, but that everyone has their own prejudices and we can all be blinded by them sometimes. And the better man is the man who can realize that. Very true. I, you go ahead. That's the, I, think, I think that's the, the, the one thing that I really, really liked about this movie was that you have the, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't see past the cotton owner. You know, yes. the cotton owner. I was just blinded by that. And he admits to he admits to that. So we all have our prejudices, but some of us are worse than others. Some of us drive around with shotguns because of it. Some of us figure it out and yeah. admit that we're wrong. This is very true. And I have to ask, I mean, granted, we do have the hindsight of knowing that we would get two more movies in a TV show. Did this feel at all to you like maybe a backdoor pilot for a TV show, like when the movie MASH came out? Um, it's hard to not think about that as, as 2020. Mm -hmm. But when you see the ending of, you know, hey, we're done here. I'm going to put you back on the train. Because, you know, Gillespie doesn't want him there and Tibbs doesn't want to be there. I love that. I love that line that, Tib and I'll talk more about this with Tibbs, where Tibbs says, these are not my people. This is your scene, man. Because white people created this system of racism. White people, white people's ancestors created this system of racism, the systematic died in the wool racism with a system that is designed to keep anyone other than white males down. Mm -hmm. And then as the generations go on, white people, all they see is a system that works for them, but they don't live an examined life. So they don't examine why that happens. So they just live this life of, Hey, the system works. This, it works for me. Why can't it work for them? Oh, because they're just children mentally and they need us to take care of them. And they just don't do the right things. And that's why they don't get ahead. Like all that stupid crap that we've heard forever. When you, you real when you really stand back and look at it, it is, it's not anybody other than the system that 
is perpetuating this. And when white people live an unexamined life, they don't realize that. And it takes something like a cop that's a hundred times better than you to solve a case for you, for you to realize that maybe something just isn't quite right here. And Tibbs knows this. Tibbs knows that it's not great in Philadelphia either. Some of the most racist people I've ever met are from Philadelphia. But he's got a captain that will get phone calls in the middle of the night and saying, yeah, you know, you just arrested my my most talented homicide investigator, right? Um, He makes more money than Gillespie. He's a better cop. Anybody will vouch for him. And, but he knows that in the South, that's, that's not his scene. He didn't create this. He didn't create this system of this town probably became a town back in the early 1800s when the Endicott's came with their cotton plantation. And now it's, it's still an operation, but they grudgingly have to pay the people to work in the cotton fields. It's just been that way forever. It was set up so that white people could make money and black people could stay down. But after a couple of generations, nobody realizes that. So he knows that he doesn't belong here. He's not part of this system. He's not part of this whole, I don't know if you read Ghost Set of Watchmen, but if you loved To Kill a Mockingbird, don't read it because it will ruin your life. Okay. <laughs> this whole system of like, but the but but the black people, they need they need us to tell them what's right. Because they don't do the right things. Well, um, has has anybody been a, ever given a chance that you've been given to try the right things? No. Every time you see a black-owned business open up in probably Sparta, Mississippi, it probably gets burned down. Okay? So there, it, the system doesn't work for people that the system wasn't built for. And Tibbs knows that. He doesn't want to be there. And Gillespie doesn't want him there for a plethora of reasons. But when they leave each other on, like, mildly good terms, it's like you think to yourself, maybe, maybe once in a while, at you know, at best, Gillespie's going to call up to Philadelphia and be like, so I got this murder. <laughs> what do you, if I, if I, if I send you some photos, can you tell me what you think about it? Like, I, I feel like this is not the beginning of a beautiful friendship necessarily no. but i feel that the the doors of communication have have cracked and you can kind of see they're not open but they have cracked and you can kind of see through it um but honestly as good as the tv show was i didn't care if i saw gillespie again <laughs> the the hero and the interesting character there are two heroes in this movie and one of them is Tibbs. And that's, that's who I want to hear from. So it's, I don't necessarily want to hear, hear more about what Gillespie's going on with, but I would have loved to have seen a series of movies with Tibbs, like Jack Reacher or something like that, where mm. somebody's coming in and, or, or uh, Jason Bourne or someone like that, where it's, Hey, or what's her name from The Outsider? Can't think of her name off the top of my head. Where, hey, we've got this thing. We can't figure it out. Who do we call? Mr. Tibbs. That I would have loved. Good point. And Rachel, when it comes to you, what, what did you make this uh, of this film? And, you know, was your, did you feel your viewing experience was probably colored by a lot of the, you know, racist 
should we say, tinged crimes that have happened over the course of 2021? Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely didn't... Um... Kind of like some of our uh, previous films where it's like, look at this portrayal of what was happening back then. And then you look at now and it's like, have we learned anything? Have we moved on? Have we gotten better? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) We have still not learned our freaking lesson. Um, It's it's really interesting. And I'll I can get into this more when we talk about when we get to the if we're their academy segment. Sydney Potier was having a year this year. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> and the fact that all three of his films have you know touch on things like race and class and education and judging a book by its cover and that sort of thing is so just the the man's a gift. Oh, yes. <laughs> he's an amazing actor. He's um, a treasure. He's an absolute treasure. Yes, yeah, and he, I mean he gives a fantastic performance in this, um, in all of the films, all three of his films that came out this year. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's really it's every. Especially now that we're getting into this late 60s and getting into the 70s and seeing the change in uh, now that we're out of kind of the the production code and people realize we're not, you know, it's not it wasn't like a knee jerk thing and they're not automatically like going to turn it on again. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, they're giving us freedom and they're not going to take it away. Okay. Boobies and sex and race and <laughs> killing and blah, you know. Uh, you know, we're getting movies this year. And again, we'll talk about this when we get to the Academy. This year was stacked um, with just movies and films that were just pushing what storytelling had been done up to this point. Um, and... You know, it's like it's it's so amazing that a movie like this was made during this time when tensions were so high and there were people at the studio that thought that this movie they at first they weren't sure if they were going to even show it in the South at all without any sort of like violent repercussions. Um, So I guess like one of the producers or something had to like do some fancy bookkeeping and be like yeah even if we never showed this in the south it would still make money um and it's it's, it got shown in the south and like there weren't riots or anything at least as far as anybody knows so that's a good thing um so yeah it's i'm so like amazed and pleased that a movie like this was made then and got the recognition that it did and yet it has not become the norm mm-hmm. you know just it, it's it's one of those movies where you know we won't get another one like it for a while and even then we're not it's not going to be 
as uh it's not going to be as as raw and gritty cuz you've got a black man coming into a town that's predominantly white you know there's an occasional black person yeah. um uh, and then a lot of black people when you go to the cotton plantation, which it boggles the mind that there were still cotton plantations in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I loved about that, what I loved about that scene is they they show you the cotton gin and then show you that there's still people in the fields. And it's like, even though we still have the cotton gin, we still have people working for probably nothing. To yeah. Do- pick this cotton it's like we have progressed yeah but not that much and it was was genius just i was just it boggles the mind that that's something that still existed um you know (laughs) at that time period um so yeah i I've got a lot more to say, but we'll get into it as we talk about the individual characters. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, I will start by saying that it is an incredibly sad and terribly unfortunate that a film which came out 54 years ago is still just as, po- as poignant and tackles a subject which, as I said, has made headlines the world over way too frequently and should no longer be an issue, especially when it comes to law enforcement and the treatment of people of color. And that having been said... It's been a while since I'd watched Mr. Poitier at work. I mean, I had I had seen a couple of films prior that had come out a couple of years prior, and I loved everything he was in. And this, of course, is an excellent opportunity to see why he's considered among the greats. I mean, this year in general, like you were saying, Rachel, and maybe, like I said, in hindsight, playing into my judgment of this, but just like M.A.S.H., it did in places play somewhat like a pilot for like a TV show or like the first chapter of a series of movies, seeing what's the way it ended, but I'll get more into that later when we do talk about the ending. But it didn't it didn't at all spoil my viewing experience. I very much enjoyed it. And like you also saying, Rachel, it's a very raw and rough kind of film. And I was like, wow, they're really kind of bringing it now when there's like no rules you know, between the, the female frontal nudity and the very, how racism is literally portrayed in this, you know, from uh, Tibbs getting beaten up by people and everything else. I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is definitely quite the departure from what we've seen up until this point. So uh, so fabulous, fabulous movie all around. I, I definitely agree. So let's start off by discussing Mr. Sidney Poitier, who is, of course, one of the protagonists in this picture as Inspector Virgil Tibbs. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of Virgil Tibbs? It's <laughs> wild. <laughs> the, thing with this, the thing with this character... And this is kind of a character that, as much as I, you know, praise Potier's work and especially the the films that he did this particular year, uh, I mean, it's a a great thing to show, you know, a black man in this context. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for the most part, the three characters that he plays in the films that he does this particular year, if you just wrote down like their major characteristics and just left off race, most people will probably assume it's a white man. Right. Because he's a black man with very, I would imagine most people has qualities that people would want 
that people would find desirable if he was white. But they can't look past the color of his skin to see what a good man he is. And, yeah, we'll talk about how this movie ended, but I there's part of me that wonders after, you know, Tibbs leaves that, you know, Gillespie may have, maybe slightly have some growth, but, and, you know, some of the other guys on the department and some of the other people in town, but I just have this feeling that a lot of them are going to just be like, well, he's one of the good ones. Like, they're still just going to have this blanket hatred for black people. But Tibbs is an exception. He practically is a white man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's smart. He dresses well. You know, he he, uh, speaks well. You know, he's not like, like, um, you know, like we're going to see... uh, in the seventies, with someone like like Shaft, right? Who uses who uses a lot of slang and lingo, you know. Tibbs he, he speaks and and acts, you know, like a a white man. And I yeah, I don't know if that was a uh, I don't know the book, so I don't know how much of that was a. Uh, if he's necessarily written that way in the book, or if that was a, a direction choice, or maybe an acting choice from Potier to, it, I just kind of get this feeling that maybe Tibbs has learned to kind of acclimate as much as he can to, so that yeah, you know, all of his actions hopefully outshine the fact that people take one look at him like that first cop did saw a black guy sitting at the train station and just assumed that he was a murder. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, are you a fan of these kind of characters in the sense that are you one to watch like uh, police procedurals or like uh, <laughs> inspector driven films or even TV shows? Not necessarily. I'm not a huge fan of, of, like cop procedurals, I tend I find they tend to be pretty repetitive and pretty tropey. Um, every now and then, you will have one that comes across um, that you know subverts the tropes or takes the tropes and you know turns them a little so that they're not just following the cookie cutter that has come before. Um, but yeah. I'm, I can't say I'm a, a huge, huge fan. Mm. Oh, well, I understand. Well, now I would actually love to see Richard Roundtree play Inspector Tibbs in his way, kind of almost like a because I suppose maybe black exploitation wasn't a thing yet, so probably that was also maybe the deal. I guess that was more of a seventies thing. But uh, yeah, I'd love I'd love to see Richard Roundtree play Inspector Tibbs indeed. And uh, uh, Zan, what did you make of of uh, Virgil Tibbs? I absolutely adore Virgil Tibbs. Um, he's obviously a nice boy. He's down there visiting. And I'm, and I'm saying that in the text, if he's visiting his mother, not in the subtext of the fact that he's black, please <laughs> understand. I, I just realized how that could have been taken badly, but yeah, he's a nice boy. He goes to visit his mother. Um, he goes, so I don't know if he's from the South. I don't know if his mother 
lived in Philadelphia and then went back there after retirement. I don't know much about his backstory, but he's down there visiting his mother. So it's not like he moved to the big city and then just forgot about his family. Um, you know, a la Cinema Paradiso or something. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm a big director now. I haven't seen my mom in 20 years. I guess I'll go back when this other guy dies. But that's another movie. Um, so he's he's a nice person. He's I think he's a nice person. I think he's... Um, and he's just down there by himself, hanging out, <laughs> waiting for the train at 4.30 in the morning. So there's a very good possibility that he, he either, hey, A, has a fantastic work ethic and has to get back to work sometime fairly soon. Or B, is like, get me the hell out of here. I can't deal with my family anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> is this a birthday or something where he has to deal with family and now he's like, oh, God, I forgot my uncles are such pains in the neck. I got to go. <laughs> but, um you know, he's a, he's a, you know, obviously cares about other people, you know, obviously cares about his family. Um, he's gorgeous. Mm. He's so cool. Even when he knows something wrong is happening to him, he keeps his cool in a way that I feel like all of us should be like, everyone should be Sydney Poitier. Poitier because <laughs> Whenever something bad happens to us, you know, someone accuses us of something, you know, our first tendency is to get defensive or get, if it's me, to get like mouthy and sarcastic and kind of adversarial. He's just sitting there going like, yeah, eventually they're going to see my badge and they're going to eat all of the crow <laughs> and <laughs> this is going to all work out. He's, unfortunately, he knows the drill He's in the South, white cop comes in, says, you know, put your hands on the on your head, um, does everything, just cool, calm and collected, doesn't even try and say anything. He's just sitting there like, I know this is, I know you're going to look bad when this is all over, because I know I'm right, and I know I did the right thing, and he's not, he picks, he's a man who picks his words Carefully. He says the absolute right thing at the absolute right time. He's so cool. I, I love that about him. Where he's like, you know, where'd you make that money? Yeah, <laughs> 10 hour days <laughs> up in Philadelphia. I'm a police officer. I don't make that in a month. Yeah, because I'm a better cop than you. Like, that's what <laughs> I would have been saying. But he's just sitting there like, he knows. He doesn't need to tell Rod Steiger. You know, he knows he's a better cop than Rod Steiger. <laughs> That's why he's a cop in Philly. That's why he's Philadelphia's best homicide investigator. And Rod Steiger is barely holding on to his job as chief of police in Sparta, Mississippi. <laughs> we, we all know who the better cop is here. Um, so, and even the way he questions people when he's in the jail cell um, with a, uh, Oh, I can't remember his name. With Harvey. He's in the Harvey, he's yeah. in, he's in the jail cell with Harvey. And Harvey's given given all the whole crap of like, why are you dressed like a white man and what why did they put you in here? And he's like and he just says, What makes you think I'm locked up? All these cells, I'm in here with you. I'm a cop man. And he starts and he starts talking to him and he gets him he gets these people to talk in a way that these adversarial southern cops just would never even think of. He's, he's so cool in that way. And I love this scene where he's, <laughs> like I alluded to before, where he's with the medical examiner, who is, a, I think, just the coroner. I don't think he's really a medical examiner. Mm. 
But he says, I'm going to need some things. I'm going to need this and 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 this. And who's going to assist me? Like, just matter of fact, like, I am obviously better than both of you guys. So both of you put together, somebody's going to be my assistant because I know what the hell I'm doing and you don't. I love how he's he's not interested. This is this is uh, you know this is a racist town with a racist murder possibly it's you know it's not we find out that it's not and not his town not his problem and the only time you could he loses his cool like twice in this movie the first time as you can tell he wants to say to his chief get me the hell out of here don't make me stay down here um and but i think his chief sort of knows like you know, make these guys eat their pride, you know, make, you know, make them see, make them see that the guy they almost arrested simply because he was black and in a train station is going to solve the biggest crime they've had for them in the last 50 years. Like, you know, show them, show them who really is boss. And the other time is when he's with Endicott and I can't blame him. And I love that scene with Endicott where the, <laughs> That is very much Tibbs reminding people this is not his scene. This this is not his scene. He did not create this system. He is not a part of the system. I don't care who you are. You're good for this murder. And if you're going to smack a cop, you know, it's not my town. I can't arrest you. And I know the chief wants to keep his job and the chief isn't going to arrest you. But if you're going to smack me, I'm going to smack you back. Uh-huh. And I love Endicott with his, there was a time where I could have you shot. And you just, and I'm just, and this, today I spent my whole day yelling at the television. And I'm just like, yeah, and that time is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sh- what kind of lawn jockey you have in this, in the yard. That is not going to happen today. And then when he walks away and Endicott starts crying, it's like, <laughs> oh, I love it. It's, it's so wonderful. But then at the same time, you know, obviously, the way we've all been taught, well, Rachel and I specifically, because we live in the North, um, even the North has its own prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> and how he realizes, oh, my God, I haven't been looking anything else, looking at anything else because Endicott is so, for my own prejudices, Endicott is so good for this. He is still in his family's, you know, probably 200-year-old cotton business. Um, he's a horrible racist. He probably treats his employees horribly. I don't know what happened to that woman in the field with the burn marks on her face, but I guarantee you she didn't get any paid sick time for that. Whatever happened to her. Um, he's got the, he's got the racist lawn jockey. He has the, 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 uh, butler who is dressed up like it's some bad 1930s movie. Um, <laughs> And the horrible, condescending stuff that he talks to Tibbs about when it comes to certain kinds of lilies. And that's the kind of racism I'm talking about, is you have that the Negroes can't take care of themselves without the white people taking care of them, without the white people watching over them like children. They really need that guidance, which is total, utter bullshit and what i refer to as the condescending racism 
where it's 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 not that I'm going to murder you because you're you know driving after sundown. <laughs> it's the um, I'm going to act like I'm better than you and that you couldn't possibly learn what I learn. And, you know, I'll give you a job, but it's the lowest possible job because that's all you can handle. That kind of crap that is just insidious and that leads to this kind of systematic keeping down of people simply because you think that they are incapable of what you're capable of. It's like, no, people are only incapable of things because the system prevents them from being capable of, of things. So he's all of those things. There's the... Um, there, there's the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the cotton branch. I can't think of what that stuff's called. I wrote it down and I don't even remember where I wrote it down, but the, the, the cotton piece in the car, there's all these things that make Endicott good for this because he's also the biggest employer of black people in this, in Sparta. Yeah. So when this factory comes in and is going to, and is going to probably hire as Rod Steiger says, 50% Negro, um, people who have been picking cotton in Endicott's fields for 200 years are going to say, hey, we have other options now. We can go work for this northern company. And, you know, I would like to hope that, you know, black people get paid the same as white people, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, 100% certain that would happen. But it could very well happen. They could have, they could learn new things. They could learn new technology, something that could be a marketable skill in more places than the South, which is where cotton grows. He's going to lose a lot of money. He's, he, could, he could lose his fields because, you know, he wouldn't have anybody to work them he, or, or he'd have to just buy a bunch more cotton gins. So he's really good for this. I mean, the idea that he hired somebody like those those goons that drive around and got tibs in the in the warehouse he could have hired those guys yeah. he's real good for this murder and tibs is like this all fits this is you know but the the fact that it's so much simpler than that is what makes this not just a great movie about you know social issues and racial issues and issues on prejudice and issues on on uh, female sexuality issues, on abortion, all the all the issues this brings up, as complex as this movie is, the murder is really simplistic. <laughs> <laughs> Even he got in his head this, uh, you know, if you follow the money, it leads to Endicott. If you follow the 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 forensic evidence, it leads to Endicott. It, I mean, he's not even thinking of anything else. Until other things start coming in his way, and then he realizes this can't happen. This this did not happen this way. It could not have been this. I was, you know, it it it. This is where it went, and he winds up following the money, and figures out, you know, where the where the money's actually going, and it has nothing to do with Endicott. But like I said, what makes him the better man is that he is the first one to say oh my gosh, I was so focused on Endicott that I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about any other evidence. I was, bl I blinded myself. And that's why he is not just the better man, but why he'll be a better cop than all of those cops put together, plus a hundred more, just like them. Yeah. Because he's willing to shift his paradigm. He's willing to shift 
his focus when he realizes he's wrong. And that's another reason why he's why he's super cool. He's also got the gift of being able to hold his own amongst people that don't necessarily want him there, aka the white cops and the mayor and the and you know whoever whoever that guy was you know, making bets on how how long he'll survive in this town. Like, oh well, somebody's gonna kill him. Oh well, hated that guy. Um, but then when he goes to Mama's. And, you know, he says her name and she says, you know, around, you know, around these parts, people call me mama. And he's like, oh, OK, well, mama, here's, you know, mama. <laughs> you know, people call me mama, mama Kaliba. All right. Well, mama, I got no beef with you. And he's just he's just talking to her. He's got this wonderful gift of being able to talk to anyone. He can talk to Harvey. He can talk to mama. He. He knows people. He understands people because he takes the time to care about them and to think about what makes them tick, who they are, what their, what their motivations are. Whereas these other cops are like, they're just stereotyping people and saying, Oh, okay, you're a criminal. You stole a wallet. Therefore you must be a murderer. And he's like, wait a minute. Why would he murder anybody? He's not even, he's not even the right, you know, we go back. It's, it's to kill a mockingbird again. It's like, well, he, he's left-handed. He couldn't have done this. (laughs) Um, so he's just he's he's so cool in that way. And I would disagree with Rachel that I don't think he sounds white with his whole, you know, this is, you know, this is not my scene, man. And, you know, he, he says a few times you dig and stuff like that. And he has that sort of hepcat, more of a northern hepcat, like jazz club type vernacular, which, you know, probably it, it just probably sounds more alien down in the south. But. To me, it didn't. It didn't sound like stuff white people would say. It would sound like you know white beatniks who went to black jazz clubs in the 1950s. Yeah, they would probably sound like that. But um, I still think they put a little bit in him with um, I get. I guess the 1960s equivalent of AAVE. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, to make him sound, you know, that yes, he is black, but he's also from the big city and he's from the north. So, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, love how cool he is and how he chooses to speak and chooses his words at the exact right time. And he says the exact right things and the perfect zingers and the perfect, you know, the famous line from this is, you know, they call me Mr. Tibbs. So um, I wouldn't have left it at that, but he left it at that. Like they call me Mr. Tibbs, like where I'm from. They, res- they give me the respect I am due, so don't even start with me, is essentially what he's saying. But he says it in fewer words because he has the body language, he has the tone of voice, he's forceful with it. And I just, I know, I mean, you probably both are thinking this at the same time. I talk too much and I'm too sarcastic. I am nowhere near as cool as, as Tibbs is. <laughs> but I should aspire to be that. And I love, and I love that he, he's able to figure things out from just knowing how the world works you know he he hears these stories about this this woman i also love that this is the other movie this year that has that begins with a woman um naked in a window obscured by the window frame which is how bonnie and clyde starts it's true yeah (laughs) yeah so um he's like all right so something's up with her 
And so he knows to ask, like, where would a guy go if he got a girl in trouble? Like, he knows those things. He knows, like, okay, this is something we need to figure out. And he knows that that's going to be that when, when you stop following the cotton money and you follow the everyday guy money and the what the rich Chicago guy had in his pocket money, fortunately, that's where that's going to lead. That, that could be where that leads to. And, you know, I, I just, I, I love how smart he is about people. I love how cool he is. I like looking at him. And I love how he, he says things that are so a normal thing for anybody to say. But when you say them to, when you're black and you say them to a Southern chief of police, it just sounds so, so like, you know, ooh, that's going to piss somebody off. It's even something a little like, you, my money's on your desk. I will pay for the long distance phone call. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and then of course, but, but I think he knows that that means he's not going to, they're not going to take his money. Like, like they're going to take some black guy's money because they can't afford their own phone call. Who does he think he is? Who do I can pay for my own phones? I mean, <laughs> that's, what's going to, he knows, he knows how people are going to react to things. He knows how to talk to anybody. He knows how to get a reaction. He knows how to get what he needs. He is a per- he's he's like he's and he admits to his own prejudice. He's like the perfect person. He's amazing. <laughs> I love this character. We're very much on the same page, and I think it is very true when you get to like murder mysteries or what have you. It's usually a case of Occam's razor. So the um you know the the close the easiest answer is the right one. And I guess you know whenever Virgil was on screen, I was right there with you, Zan. I couldn't but cheer as he is a badass inspector and very much puts the entire police force of Sparta to shame, as it's evident that Sparta is a pretty small town with an equally small-minded mentality and the mental openness of a mouse hole, I think. And it did hurt me personally when we first meet Tibbs and he gets carted off to the police station by Sam Wood, as obviously being black, even though he may not be guilty of killing Philip Colbert, and he has a lot of money on him, so he must be guilty of something, right? And that was I was like, ugh, really? And you have to hand it also to Virgil, like you were also saying, Sam, for being so calm and cool about the whole thing. And I was just waiting for the moment when he does reveal that he is in fact a cop himself. And I must say there was a grin of satisfaction on my part during that moment. And Virgil just continues to show everybody up from when he examines the body of Colbert to just the way he conducts the investigation. And it did strike me at how incompetent this police force actually is. And they don't even think of doing things that to Virgil seem very much routine. So I guess this film is somewhat dated by the fact that nobody, not even Tibbs, uses gloves in any part of the crime scene. Yeah, fingerprints are obviously not a thing that anyone is concerned about. <laughs> exactly. Because I was like, I guess possibly during the 60s, they weren't maybe considered a requirement, be it for sanitary purposes or leaving fingerprints. I agree, Rachel. I was like, okay, yeah, let so alone I- sanitation. Like you're touching a blood, you know, a, a body that's got, you know, dried blood on it. And did you just put your fingers in the dried blood on the car? Like, how is that a good idea? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, 1960s. And uh, I guess, though the majority of the prejudice does come from the folks in Sparta. You know, you guys were pointing out there is also a slight prejudice on Virgil's part. And it's understandable when he initially suspects 
Endicott as being the murderer, and we get that scene, which I'm sure must have caused quite a stir that you had uh, alluded to, Zan, of Endicott slapping Virgil and Virgil slapping him right back. I'm sure that you there, there must have been some audiences of like, wow, he slapped him back. And unlike, you know, any of the white characters, Virgil, I think, actually, had, like you were saying, he admits he'd been prejudiced himself in that case. And at least he's man enough to admit it. And it was a shame we didn't get to see any of Virgil's martial arts skills, which are part of the character in the novel. But it probably would have taken away from the story that was being told. So I'm like, OK, I don't have to see Virgil Tibbs doing kung fu moves. It's OK, even though in the book, apparently he's a black belt in a million martial arts. And, and I guess, you know, he's fully aware what is going on. He's got zero interest in trying to be friendly with any of the cops. So the somewhat amicable, amicable relationship he ends up having with wrong, wrongfully accused Harvey Oberst was good to see. And I think it did give us a chance to see Virgil crack a smile and chuckle as he does also towards the end of the film with Bill Gillespie. And speaking of Bill Gillespie, let's get to our chief of police, played by Rod Steiger, whom we'd actually had met in a smaller part in On the Waterfront. So, Zan, starting with you, what did you make of Bill Gillespie? He's definitely the character who I think is has the capacity for growth mm-hmm. in Sparta. He, like like I said before, he is a white person who was brought up in a system that benefits him. So that's all he knows. He's, I don't know where he came from, but he's obviously new at this job. But, you know, he's not married. He doesn't have kids. He's kind of, you know... It sounds like if he weren't a cop, he'd be a serial killer. Wasn't married, no kids, quiet, keeps himself, never invites anybody over. And I think he kind of likes this job that he doesn't have to do a whole heck of a lot in. You know, they have a, you know, and even he even he says that, you know, you know, I could use a homicide expert because I am not one. I mean, this this is the, this town is the epitome of like, this is the kind of thing that happens in other places, not here. Um, so I think he kind of likes his, his, you know, quiet job of probably stopping fights at the pool hall and, um, you know, stopping the, the, the yahoos in the, in the car, you know, trying to chase, you know, trying to chase somebody in a warehouse and beat them up with a chain and a baseball bat, you know, okay, you have your fun, now go home. Like, he knows that this is what people are like, but I don't think he thinks... He really has that much power to change it. And what he's seen, like I said, are, well, you know, we, you know, this is a, this is a free country. You're free to make, make whatever you want of yourself. And, you know, why the black people can't do it? I have no idea. You know, all that stupid, you know, crap about completely unexamining the the system of the systematic racism that we have. So, you know, when he, when he gets brought in, when Tibbs gets brought into him, I think he's, probably looking at him like who the hell is this guy you know this seems like a town where everybody knows each other or at least knows of each other you know like the like the coroner hadn't met hadn't met the chief yet but they knew who each other were so here's this guy he's probably never seen before (laughs) um wearing wearing a suit aka why you dress like a white guy (laughs) um telling him things about his own town he doesn't know you know, it's like, there's no trains this early. Tuesday only. There's a 4.30. Honk in the background. That was brilliant. <laughs> this is, we will talk more about Norman Jewison when we talk about the 
the when if we were the academy. Um, there's so much going on with Tibbs that I can see why he doesn't like him off the off the top of the bat. Like, who are you to come into my town and tell me tell me anything? And you know, first of all, where'd you get all this money? I mean, that's a lot of money. <laughs> And, you know, what are you doing sitting at a train station by yourself? You know, all these things that, you know, cops can make sound suspicious, even though it's not necessarily suspicious. And but then when he finds out that he's a cop, you know, he pulls out his badge and shows it to him. And he's like, hey, Wood, did you did you even bother to question this guy when you brought him in here? Um, So he's. He's a better cop than Wood and Courtney, that's for sure. But oh, yeah. he's not that—he's not that much better. And he's from a system that is systematically racist, and in a way that benefits him. So he's never examined it. It's probably been his experience that you know all the trouble happens on the black side of town. You know all that bullshit that we hear all the time from 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 crappy, inept police departments, essentially. But. Then he sort of realizes, and he ha- and you can tell he has this internal conflict, like, this guy's better than me kind of in every possible way. He, he's a better cop. He makes more money than me. He's better looking. He's better dressed. <laughs> I mean, let's just admit it. Sidney Poitier is just better than all of us. He's just got it going on. He has it figured out. He's, he's amazing. Like we said, he is a gift and a treasure. <laughs> so... To have Sidney Poitier come in your town and kind of show you up is probably hard for his, you know, probably very, very toxic masculinity, fragile manhood. And, but at the same time, he makes perfect sense. Can't be this guy because he was hit from behind on his right, which would have been somebody who was right-handed. So this left-handed guy, odds aren't good. Um, Also couldn't have been Wood because he was in his, he can't drive two cars. Couldn't have been, um, couldn't have been Harvey because he he was at the pool hall and he has chalk under his nails, not dirt under his. I mean, everything that he says to him, he's thinking, huh? And I would like to think that his experience with with Tibbs would make him a better police officer. Just realizing that it's not just look at the most. The, the most available possible suspect, and therefore that's that's the one. Um, I would like to think that teaches him that. But then, but then, I think he's got some more learning to do because he still has a hard time thinking of himself on equal footing with with Tibbs, and that I think is the most evident in the scene where they are in Gillespie's house. And they're talking about, and he's saying, you know, you're the only human being that's ever been in this house. Um, Have you ever been close to marriage? Do you ever get lonely? And he says, you know, no lonelier than you, man. And that's Tibbs' way of relating to him, saying, hey, dude, we've got stuff in common. You know, I I feel for you. And then he just gets mad. He's like, I don't need your pity. You know, he freaks out. And then the whole... You know, the whole, is that, you know, is that what they call you in Philadelphia, boy? Like, what? <laughs> it's, it's like he has these moments of like almost, almost getting there, like almost being a decent person. And he just screws it up every time. And even when he arrests Wood, he's like, oh, there's money missing. He made a big deposit. It's got to be him. Uh, like, he, 
it's, he can't get over his whole most obvious thing. But at the same and and but at the same time, he keeps spending all of his time saying, "Fine, if you want to leave, leave. I don't need you here. We got this under control." But then he's always protecting Tibbs. So there's something there about him that makes him realize, like, look, I can't have it on my head that this guy might run into violence or possibly death in my town. I can't have that on my head. His, his, you know, his captain was nice enough to tell him, hey, help me out so people know he's down here. And if Philadelphia, the seat of America's democracy, <laughs> and being a Twin Peaks fan, I know there's an FBI office there. <laughs> Philadelphia finds out that one of their officers was killed in the South for no reason under, in a town that is supposedly run legally by a cop that he was supposed to be helping out, somebody's going to come down here and say to him, you know, what happened to Virgil Tibbs? Why, why did this happen? Why was he not given the things he needed? He was here helping you. I mean, it's going to come down on him. And he's, and, and he's got that on one hand. And on the other hand, he's got the whole issue that the mayor's talking to him about. He's like, look, you got to make this happen. We're going to lose this factory and all these factory jobs. If you don't find out who kills this guy. I mean, fortunately for you, you can just sit back and let Tibbs take it all and then give you the credit. Or you can say, oh, well, too bad. Tibbs couldn't figure it out or we figured it out. And so we sent him home. But at the same time, if you screw this up, you're screwing a lot of things up for this economy. Because even he says to Tibbs, this town needs this factory. It'll change a lot of people's lives. It'll put us on the map. We need this factory. So he does have a lot of pressure. But he's, he's, he's still really new at learning how to not be a total racist pig of a cop. <laughs> and the best, just the best moment he has for that is when you have Endicott slapping him and then Virgil slapping him back. Where he just stands there like, I really don't know what I just saw. <laughs> and I don't quite know what to do about it because on the one hand I got two dudes assaulting each other on the other hand I'm in Mississippi where systematic racism has been since the dawn of white people coming to Mississippi <laughs> but at the same time this Endicott guy is horrible and he started it yeah. you know he started it Tibbs finished it so there's not a lot he's going to do and he's not going to be that cop that just shoots a black guy because he happened to stand up to a white man. He's not going to be that guy, but he does talk to Tibbs afterwards. He's like, what the hell do you think you're doing this guy? And he's essentially saying this guy runs this town. He can have you killed. Like the previous chief would have shot you and said it was self-defense. Yeah. So it's like, he knows the way things used to be, aren't the way things should be, but he has no idea how things should be. The status quo is extremely comfortable for him. Um, we never hear if he got close to getting married the way we hear that Tibbs got close to getting married. So I don't know if he was the type who found a woman that loved him, but he just wouldn't just was a stubborn type of guy that would, would not get out of his status quo or get out of his rut and, and 
compromise for anybody, even in a marriage. I don't quite know, but he, he just doesn't know how things should necessarily be, but he knows that somebody doesn't get to, you know, just smack a strange man for no reason uh, or a stranger for no reason. (laughs) And if somebody smacks back, well, that's kind of the expected reaction. (laughs) So, and I, I, I do, and like I said, I, I like that he keeps telling him to leave, but when he realizes he's not leaving, he's doing things like, okay, well, since you're still here, tell me this. Or, okay, because you're still here, I'm going to drive, I'm going to follow you, make sure you're safe. And I love the scene where he gets in the back seat of the cop car. When Tibbs has asked Wood to take him through his night, the night he found um colbert's body and the chief is like you can and he says the chief come with us if you want to he's like all right and he gets in the back seat and it's this silent thing of why are you back there why aren't you putting tibbs back there and gillespie just gives him this look like tibbs is the one that asked you to do this so he's you know he's riding he's riding shotgun on this there's so many little subtle things in this movie that are unspoken there's no reaction to, they just happen that really tell you a lot about that character. He's literally taking a backseat to Tibbs because he knows Tibbs is a better cop than him. And rather than admit it, rather than tell his guys, okay, give him what he wants, he's more on the ball with this, whatever, he's literally just taking a backseat. No, no, no words, no nothing, just I will take a backseat to this, you know what you're doing. And, and then, of course, at the end, we have him take care of yourself, you know? And that's, that's about as good as he's going to get, I think, at this point, until he can, you know, until he, you know, part of me wants to say until he meets more black people, but that's not it. He knows probably tons of black people until he bothers to talk to and learn about more black people and learn about where their talents are and what their knowledge base is, because that's probably something he's never done. Probably probably 10 years before when he was, you know, when he was just like officer Wood. I mean, if he had walked into a trade station at four in the morning, saw a black guy just sitting there with a hundred bucks in his pocket, he probably would have been like, okay, this is, (laughs) this is obviously not right. But he's, but I think he has the capacity to learn things. And that that's the best thing. That's the best thing about his character is that he's fighting it every step of the way because this is all he's ever known, but he's figuring it out. And, you know, he's, you know, people who haven't had a, people who don't have it all figured out the way Sidney Poitier does really need to aspire to start figuring out the way what Rod Steiger does in this movie. Very, very well said. And Rachel, what did you make of our chief of police? I, it's, it's interesting because I think him and actually the entire police force are kind of, I mean, obviously there's the blatant racism, Mm -hmm. but I also think that it's a little bit of that small town uh mentality and just kind of the 
I don't want to say victim because you know, so it's a it, yeah. You're not a victim if you if you live in a small town, but it's just the kind of the oh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but you you know, up in my guess is up until this murder that probably like the worst crime that's ever been committed is probably like juvenile vandalism or something mm. you know or someone driving drunk right. <laughs> you know because at one point i think one of the cops says something to i think gillespie about you know oh you know you're no homicide detective because they probably have never needed a homicide detective because you have all these small towns where, you know, you see it all the time on like Dateline and stuff or, you know, a small town of a, maybe a few thousand people. And they're like, you know, stuff like that doesn't happen there. And therefore, when something like that does happen, they are completely not prepared. Nobody even locks their doors here. I, exactly. I you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like Mayberry where, you know. Andy Taylor is, you know, he's the sheriff. He's also the justice of the peace and <laughs> of about 5,000 other different things. And, you know, his deputy, you know, Barney five runs around with a gun with one bullet that he keeps in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. And the because worst that no happened there is it. Otis the drunk. I mean, that's like yes. the worst day they, they have in Mayberry. Exactly. You know, the grocery store got robbed once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they're just it's it's a combination of the the racism and the fact that yeah this like you know writing speeding tickets probably the most work that any of these cops have ever had to do um so when something this extreme happens they're just they're absolutely lost and the fact that you know, their chief is new, just puts them even, even further, you know, behind the learning curve. <laughs> um, oh, but he, I mean, he, like I said, I, I, I like to think that he does do a little growth as a person. And maybe it's just the cynic in me because we, have seen what we've seen especially recently in the last few years uh when it's you know cops relation to the public especially against people of color um that yeah i, I there's a little spark of change but whether that that's yeah, you know, whether whether gillespie is going to nurture that little spark so that it gains into a raging fire of change is to be determined, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely the most out of all the cops. He's, uh, seems the, the, the one, he has moments where he's like, actually, he actually seems like he's willing to get off his ass and work. <laughs> yeah. 
but then other times he just it seems like he just wants to like go and prop up his feet and <laughs> just take a nap you know <laughs> somewhere um you know and he's supposed to be the leader so you know any complaints we have about the rest of the cops you, you just gotta look to him because he's setting the tone for the way that they act um so and the the the, the chewing the gum drove me bonkers <laughs> uh, that made me so tense i don't know why it drove me nuts yeah, and apparently that's that was the director's choice that he insisted that he do that and cuz he wasn't really game for it at first and then once he did it apparently he went through like 26 packs of gum over the course of filming this movie. <laughs> so but I found it annoying. <laughs> Wow. Well, <laughs> I guess Rod Steiger ended up chewing quite a spare share of gum indeed. Um yeah. I mean, this man is, I, I don't know why, but at first when I watched him, I was like, this guy's a couple of steps away of being as incompetent as Clancy Wiggum on The Simpsons. Because, I mean, for a large part of the film, he is incredibly unlikable in large parts, you know, like guys were both mentioning for the racist views he has, of course. But the views he has in general on anybody who isn't a white man. And on one side, I mentioned his incompetence as granted he's scrambling to find the guilty party. He's also being pressured by Mayor Schubert to get this taken care of ASAP in order not to lose Colbert's involvement in, uh, in Sparta and, of course, any further disgrace to the town. And so, of course, mm -hmm. going, he's going simply well, by and, a... And, Go ahead. Uh, and, and I'm assuming that they are... He's a sheriff? Yeah. Not a police officer and most of the times your head sheriff is an elected position right yes in the united states so he also has to think about that exactly like elections in november elections in november <laughs> kind of thing but yeah good point rachel I'm again this stupid country Exactly. And if you're going yeah, to throw out the Simpsons references, Nick, I'm going to pass them right back to you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Zan. And yeah, because he's he's literally going by assumptions and he's kind of taking bits and pieces of what Virgil is pointing out. And he jumps to conclusions at the drop of a hat from Harvey Oberst to later Sam Wood. And all it does is make him look more and more of a fool. And I think this character does find some redemption later on in the film when at first he is coming to Virgil's rescue, in inverted commas, though it could be seen as simply having another policeman die in Sparta would go hard with him and, of course, uh, the rest of the country. But as things progress, he does seem to lighten up and find acceptance when it comes to Virgil as we see the two of them at, at Bill's apartment and they're making small talk. So even there, like you were mentioning, Zan, there is a moment of tension, almost as if Bill feels like Virgil has tricked him into liking him. He's like, how dare you make me feel comfortable, almost. So I was like, hmm, okay. And I was glad that Bill finally lets Virgil do things his way, which of course results in them catching the culprit roughly before the film wraps up. And yeah, I mean, some of the choices that Norman Jewison made as directorially were very, very poignant and great indeed. So let's get to the man who seems to be quite the perv and voyeur when it comes to Miss Dolores parading in her house 
in the nude and is temporarily placed in jail under suspicion of being Colbert's killer. We have Warren Oates as Sam Wood. You might, this is might know from The Wild Bunch, Dillinger, Race with the Devil, Sleeping Dogs, and many more. So, Rachel, when it came to our pervy peeping Tom, what did you make of Sam Wood? What a creep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm victim blaming. <laughs> you know, she's, yeah, I, you know, when it's, when it's really, really hot, you know, granted, I, I have grown and lived in the, the Midwest my entire life, but I, I spent enough summers in, in Florida uh, to know how hot and swampy things can get. And sometimes you really want to feel like you could peel off your own skin. Uh, so, uh, the, the fact that she's running around naked with the lights on for everyone to see, you know, that's, well, we'll, we'll get to her. Uh, but, uh, you know, that doesn't mean he's got to look at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just, um, he, 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 when it comes to like, you know, being a, you know, a, a, an officer, you know, someone who's supposed to be upholding the law. He seems to, um, his, his main desire in the line of the job is to the, do the bare minimum to keep his job. Yeah. Like I will do my patrol, but I may make a slight detour so I can oogle at the 16 year old through the windows and yeah, when I go on my coffee break, uh, I may have that extremely sugary, not good for me pie <laughs> that I know is not good for me, which, you know, it's still a sweet. It may not be donuts, but still kind of perpetuating the stereotype. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so. Yeah, he's just, he's not a good cop <laughs> uh, by by any stretch of the imagination. Although, it, yeah, the fact that they, like, arrested him, yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, finding himself being accused of rape is awful. And, you know, it's a shame that that happened to him in a way, kind of. Um, doing what the actions that he took opened him up to being accused of things. Of not just the rape, but also the, the suddenly large deposit of money into his bank and account. Uh which apparently he did gambling. I don't quite understand what it was he's doing. I'm assuming it's some sort of gambling. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, he's a, he, you know, he may be a cop, but at the end of the day, he's human. And humans are going to make dumb decisions like gambling. Um, but when you're a officer, 
when you wear, you know, any sort of, you know, whether it's a sheriff or police officer, any sort of authority figure with, you know, a uni- you put on that uniform, you put on that badge, you put on the gear that identifies your job. You have to understand that that automatically puts you in a category separate from the rest of everybody else. And there are certain expectations that come with being in that position. And you need to be more cognizant of how you are, how, how your actions may be perceived because you're in that position. Does that make sense? It totally does. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, seeing also the things that have happened in 2021 and cops, you know, abusing the badge and not living up to what the badge represents. You make a, an excellent point, Rachel. It was a very, very well put indeed. And okay, uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, Zan, what did you make of Sam Wood? He is the absolute perfect, perfect description of an absolutely not just, you know, a complete and total racist piece of shit, but also like the most lazy, inept cop that there is. He's 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 the he's like this trifecta of um racist, almost predatory sex offender, <laughs> and lazy ass cop. Um he's everything you don't want in a police force. Because, you know, if he's not spending his time ogling a 16-year-old through the window because everybody knows that, you know, when it's hot, she doesn't wear clothes. <laughs> um, he's, like, wasting his time at uh, at the diner. You know, I think that's probably when he's on patrol. I think that's where he he is most of the time, especially when we see and they, they go to the diner and um, <laughs> Ralph says... Hey, I got some some of that pie you like. He's like, what are you what are you talking about? I don't eat that stuff. Like, he's obviously doing the wrong things for himself, um, and just doing as little as he possibly can. You know, I think, I, and I get the feeling that when he found that body, he's like, ah, oh, crap. Now I have to work. Now I have to <laughs> do something. Um, yeah, he's everything. You, he's everything you don't want, and. I feel like even when he gets accused of something, he's, I mean, he's still not figuring, figuring it out. You know, he's still not figuring it out that he's kind of an absolute jerk. Um, yes. He's, he's sitting there and he's, and even when he tries to explain where the money comes from, he's, he, I don't know, what is he playing quarters, rolling, playing dice in the alley? Like what, it's some sort of like illegal gambling thing that he's doing to get this money. <laughs> He's like, when I get enough quarters, I turn them into $20 bills at the bank, and then I just deposit them, finally. It's like, um, why weren't you just depositing the quarters? <laughs> like, what's, the, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, I don't, know what, I don't know what his deal was. But, yeah, he's just so inept. And everything you don't want in a cop, you don't want somebody. I mean, this could have been a really bad scene with... Um, with the arrest of, of Tibbs, you know, if he'd beaten him up or if he'd shot him or something like that, they have a lawsuit at best, you know, at worst, they're going to have another, you know, Chicago is, you know, not too far away from the 
um, open casket funeral of the murder of Emmett Till. I mean, this, you know, the, the, this is one more thing for the North to be like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, he's he's a liability, if you ask me. When it comes to police officers, he's a liability. Um, and I think that's part of why Gillespie is so ready to believe that he did something wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, like I said, you know, Gillespie still has a lot to learn about not just picking the convenient person, um, but picking the, uh, the, picking the right person. But, but he's like, okay, well, if he's going to do this one illegal thing and the money checks out and this and that and, and whatever, and uh, he's probably thinking, yeah, and Wood's an idiot. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> like, if he were a decent person and if he were a decent cop, I think that he he would have gotten that, that wonderful benefit of the doubt that usually white Southern cops are ready to extend to each other sight unseen. But he's not. He's, a, he's like a terrible person. And... As we find out with Dolores, it's like, I don't care who consented to what. You know, I don't care who said what. And I, I, I liked this line in this. It's like, I, you know, I don't care if anybody says this is consensual. She's 16, and that's still illegal in this state. Um, I mean, even he knows that, he should, that, his, that his chief should not know that he's, instead of working, he's driving by where where the young naked girl is where everybody knows the young naked girl is he's yeah he's just he's terrible and he's um i think he's there as a as a as an example of this is what traditionally we're working with in the south he's there as the this is probably why gillespie's getting such pushback from his officers because he um, he's not he's he's nowhere near as good as Tibbs, but he's good enough to know that you need to question a suspect when they come when you arrest them. <laughs> yes. Just minimal minimal police procedure is probably is pro is required and expected of you when you're a cop like i don't i mean i don't know who gave this guy a job i have a feeling that like two chiefs ago was his uncle and his dad was like you know my boy can't do nothing why can't you give him a job <laughs> i really wonder about this guy but he's he's perfect to be there because rod steiger can't be this character rod steiger can't be the traditional cop because like i said we need somebody who has the capacity to learn things um, Wood's probably not going to learn from this experience. He's probably going to be like, <laughs> you know, if another murder happens, he's probably going to say, oh, you're not going to call that colored boy to help you out again. He's not going to learn anything. Um, and so, you know, I, he's not, he, he's definitely innocent of the crime that he is accused of, but at the same time, he's the, he's the, schadenfreude i guess where mm -hmm. i feel kind of happy about oh taste of your own medicine this is what happens when you when there's a perception of you where you don't 
fit the perfect mold and no one gives you the benefit of the doubt. And with you, it's actually stuff you've done. It's not just like, oh, you're black, therefore you're a criminal. Um, but, you know, oh, you're, you're obviously running numbers somewhere and you're looking at young girls naked and you're not actually on patrol. You're just eating pie. So, yeah, I would believe that you would do anything stupid. So he's a good character for the fact that he's there to show you what we're used to in the South what the, or what the, at the, what the time period for racist police departments in the small town South were. And he's, he's a cautionary tale too, because we, you know, we've always talked about that you should always stand up for people who are being oppressed because one day it's going to happen to all of us. It's going to be, you know, even when I hear things like, you know, from, you know, from Trump supporters here, well, he only wants to throw out the people who are here illegally. It's like, no, when he's done with that, he's going to start rolling back the laws that say people can be here legally, you know, with the, with the, like with the dreamer students, stuff like that. And this is a perfect example of that. You can't oppress people and treat people like, their stereotypes are your answer every single time because one day the stereotype is going to be you. It's going to be the cop who drives by the girl's house. It's going to be the cop who, who plays the numbers. It's going to be the cop that goes to the diner when he's supposed to be on patrol. That's, that's the stereotype that's going to come and get you one day. So, you know, I like the cautionary tale aspect of this character. Very, very well said. Yes, I do think he very much is the cautionary tale, and uh, indeed, I mean, and that, it seems like we're very much in agreement because I got the impression I got of this character is, of course, he is the racist perv on the forces. It's unclear whether he actually ever did have his way with Dolores as much as he may have wanted to, seeing that it appears to be a regular hobby of his to drive by her house to watch her showing off her goodies, and there does seem to be some familiarity between the two by the way she looks at him through the window or maybe it's a fetish of hers being an exhibitionist granted he shouldn't be there period and other than his voyeurism yeah you have to hate him for being the one to obviously wrongfully arrest Virgil in the first place and I I'm sure he was probably hoping he would get to beat him because he seems incredibly almost either has almost a sadistic streak about him. It was just like, ooh, I arrested a black man. Do I get to beat him kind of thing? And he was, I caught me one, Captain. Exactly. So I was yeah. like, oh, man, this is this guy's just waiting to, to, to literally, uh, you know, get the, the go-ahead to, to beat up Virgil. And so I couldn't stand this guy between, as I said, you know, oogling uh, 16-year-old girls and wanting to beat up black people. So I was like, oh, man. But, yeah, he is very much the cautionary tale, and he has definitely learned zero from this. And I think he'll just carry on in his horrible, perverted uh, should we say racist ways, which is very, very sad. But yeah, as to your point, Zan, I think he is very much the cautionary tale and the idea of what, you know, small town Southern cops might've been like back then. 
So let's move to two rather opposing characters which do play a significant role in this film during the time they are on screen. We have William Shalit, of course, as Mayor Schubert, whom I listeners might know from Richard Diamond, Private Detective, and The Twilight Zone, of course. And on the other, the wife of deceased Philip Colbert, Lee Grant, as Mrs. Colbert, who has been in such things as Detective Story, Shampoo, Valley of the Dolls, and tons more. So, Zan, when it came to these two characters, what did you make of our mayor and our widow? Well, when I said at the beginning this movie has two heroes and Tibbs mm-hmm. is one of them, uh, Mrs. Colbert is the other one. I think Lee Grant is fantastic in this movie, and I love this character. And she's, we've talked about this before where, you know, when we talked about something like Cimarron, where it's like it's almost there right. at being the enlightened person. And, and she is definitely that person where she says, I am going to pull this factory out of this town if you don't keep that Negro cop on this. And I'm like, oh, you almost had it. You were almost there. <laughs> and I think she's the one, and I, and I love her character in this because of her, who are you people and what kind of town is this? That this is what, this is how you try and solve a murder. Like what the hell is wrong with you? You know, they're from Chicago. They're from a big city. Um, the person who is widely regarded as America's first male serial killer is from Chicago. H.H. <laughs> um, H. Holmes, by the way, Chicago. Um, Devil in the White City, if you've never read that book. Um, so she's seen some, she's seen some shit. <laughs> I mean, she knows what kind of things go on in questioning, and it's not just hey, this kid had your husband's wallet, therefore he must be the murderer. She Even she can see through, I mean, she's not a cop, but she can see through this horrible, horrible police work. Not that Chicago's perfect. Not that Chicago doesn't have racism. Not that, you know, like, I'm, I'm not trying to say the North is perfect, but but I think this movie is definitely trying to say that when you get into a big city in the North, versus a small town in the very deep south, and Mississippi is the deep south, things are different. There's different There's different perceptions. Um, the fact that this company is willing to hire a workforce that is 50% black tells you something about the Colberts, that they are much more progressive than I think anybody in Sparta has ever seen. So there's there's something about that unspoken underlying thing about her character that makes you realize, like, look, you're an idiot. This guy knows what's going on. He needs to stay on this case. And I'm going to make sure you happen again. It's, it's the money. Like I'm going to pull this out of here. And if, and again, like I said before about Gillespie, if he's the reason why this factory doesn't come in here, he's in a, he's in a world of hurt. Um, they can't have that. And that's, and that's what the mayor says is like, we can't not have this factory. You have to keep this guy here. And then you start to think that maybe the mayor is a little bit progressive, but then he's like, but, you know, if that Negro screws it up, you're in the clear. It's like, oh, God, what the heck is wrong with you? Um, and he's just like, just solve this. Solve it fast. And that's the problem. That's where you get into problems 
with police work. People want you to solve the case quickly and they don't care if you close the case or if you solve the case, as long as it's closed. And just finding the nearest guy who stole a wallet is going to close it, but did you solve the case? No, you didn't. And that's, that's a difficult thing. And I think us as a public, we need to, you know, I think we need to give detectives a little bit more leeway <laughs> on some things. It's like, look, are you actually trying with this? Was this person just really good at what they did? Like, is this, or is this murder so damn random? Like we find out this murder actually is that it's not cut and dry. It's not easy. There is no smoking gun. There's nobody with bloody, you know, bloody hands and a knife saying, yeah, hey, where do I go to deposit this murder evidence? I totally killed somebody. And I think she realizes that coming from a place where there is murder, that it's not just the first guy that walks by on that street after you find the body. So I, and you also kind of get the feeling that her and her husband, again, a little bit more progressive than I think a lot of people are used to. She obviously has a stake in her husband's company. This is probably a company they own together. Maybe he does it, but she does the books, you know, that kind of thing mm -hmm. that in the 60s. We didn't see much of that. The fact that she's not just there because he's there and she has power to sit now that he's gone, this company's hers, all hers. And it's not like there's a manager down there with her saying, you know, oh, they're there. I will take care of this for you or, you know, whatever. She's she's now in charge, which is, again, something these these cops in the South probably are not used to a woman being in charge. And she's saying, if you don't solve my husband's murder and if you don't do it the right way. I don't want my factory in a place like this. And I don't blame her in a place like that. Who are you people? And what kind of a place is this? When she finally realizes, because what they're probably doing is probably thinking, all right, where's a place we can probably very cheaply put our company. I'm not saying this is a company that's altruistic. There's probably some sort of tax break thing going on. I'll bet you they bought land for cheap because Endicott probably had to sell it because he can't have as big of a cotton plantation anymore because he actually has to pay people. Um, so he's probably got cheap land. It's probably, he knows there's like a built-in unemployment population that will want these jobs. Um, and he's trying to expand his market. This is, this is Colbert. He's trying to expand his market. But I don't think they necessarily want to help a town that's going to act like this, that's going to be like this, especially when they are so open to having a multiracial population of employees. Because what they don't want is employees not working with each other, having fighting over who sits at what lunch table, or do we have to have a whites only colored whites only versus colored lunchroom, all that bullshit. Um, so she's probably thinking to herself, what the hell did I get myself into? And I think that's her ultimatum. It's like you work with other people. You as white people need to work with other races or you're not going to work with my company. So I really, really loved her character about that. And I thought, yeah, Lee Grant was fantastic. And the mayor was just sort of, 
He's a perfect politician. He's playing all the sides. He's making everybody happy. You know, get the get the case solved. Make her happy. You know, and if you have to send him home, solve the case first. Get the so beaches he, open by the 4th of July. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a summer town, and we depend on summer dollars. And those beaches will be open. I don't care what you have to do to make it happen. It's exactly the same thing, except, you know, no little boy gets eaten by a shark <laughs> in this one. But, yeah, he's, he's still, he's that... I don't want to say he's cut from the same cloth as Endicott, um, the mayor, but he's a quilt made out of Endicott fabric and Gillespie fabric. (laughs) And, you know, with political batting in the middle that just makes everybody warm and happy. So he's doing the right thing by telling him to keep Tibbs here, but he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, he's saying, yeah, I know it sucks that we have to have this Negro policeman help us out, but it's going to be better for us in the long run, politically and financially, where what he should be saying is, why are you so inept that we have to have somebody from Philadelphia who just happened to be here visiting their mom when your idiot cop arrested him for waiting for a train to solve this murder? What is the problem with the police force that this is the only way we have to get things done is if people from out of town come in here and fix shit? Um, He's not saying that because, again, the status quo of a systematically racist system is very comfortable for white people. And it's not the way it should be. But especially in 1967, that's the way it was. So he's a perfect politician playing, playing all sides. I think he did a very good job in that. He's... Thank you for mentioning the Twilight Zone because he was <laughs> in the episode Mr. Beavis, one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like I liked her. You know, she's doing her best for 1967. We did still say Negro in 19. 19- yes, Negro was at least better than the other N word, and it was better than saying colored. But it wasn't good. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she's at yeah. least trying. She's at least trying. And yeah. you know, back in the day, that would have seemed incredibly progressive but to us it just sounds like oh grandma don't say that word anymore mm-hmm. yeah and in fact uh, I, I i will be sharing my thoughts here when it comes to, to that as well because uh, it seems like we we might have the, the diverse opinions on mrs colbert zan but before my I, I i get to say that rachel when it came to you what did you make of our mayor and mrs colbert okay first of all the mayor his face <laughs> I have looked at his Wikipedia entry and his IMDb. I know his face from somewhere, but nothing is clicking and is driving me bonkers. He's in like everything. I mean, he's yeah, one of those no, character actors there's, that's just that's, everywhere. I, there's nothing in his like IMDb that's like I. That's where I know him from, and it's absolutely driving me that. <laughs> No, he's in the periphery of movies that you've... He's in the periphery of a hundred movies and TV shows that you've seen. He's he's definitely a a that guy. Yes, he definitely is. But it's just, oh, I hate that. Uh, First world problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, he's just saying... Yeah, like Zayn said, he's he's very much a politician where, again, kind of like the... yeah, the head sheriff. It's I 
elections are going to happen eventually, and therefore I must do everything I can to make sure that when people think my name and see my name on the ballot, they go, you know, the, the part of their brain that lights up for positive things is the part that lights up. Um, it, the fact that he actually thinks through far enough to be like, well, if he does solve the case, he'll make sure you get credit for it because he doesn't really want to be here anyway. But if he screws it up, then it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes a certain kind of person to actually make that logical, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do that math. <laughs> uh, so he's just, yeah. But you know, at the same time, Mrs. Colbert knows exactly, she knows that he's exactly who she needs to go to when she sees just how inept the sheriff's department is in this town. Um, and she knows how much her, her husband's money uh, has influence. You know, she knows even if her husband's dead, the factory is what matters. Um, and, yeah, they don't spell it out right, but yeah, she must have some pull. Um, so um, she's she's kind of yeah, she is kind of the other hero, you know. For the one of the few times where the white person with money throws their weight around for a good reason. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, I guess when it comes to these two. Uh, it, it, it was curious because I do agree. Mayor Schubert is very much that kind of elected official who wants to keep his hands as clean as possible and let others get theirs dirty, regardless of what it might be, as long as it does not in any way tarnish his career or his office. And in keeping with the spirit of Sparta, though, and he though he never meets Virgil, I think the mere thought of a black police detective taking credit from his all-white police force doesn't sit well with him and he's even happy you know like you were saying Rachel to let his own chief take the fall should something go wrong or if something should happen to Virgil so it all works out for him he's very calculating as I suppose a lot of politicians tend to be and he very much doesn't seem to care about people as long as money and business come to Sparta if that happens it's all good Mrs. Colbert yeah I mean she is the most sympathetic when it comes to Virgil but I did personally find her still very bigoted for her initial reaction of seeing Virgil and him trying to comfort her. The reaction she had, it showed that she is also not particularly fond of black people either. And when he shows to be the most competent who actually cares about getting the murder murder solved, it changes her tune. It is definitely a step in the right direction when it comes to her prejudice, but I don't think it should take he, uh, Tibbs's interest in her husband's murder to make her less prejudiced. At least that's my opinion. But she is I, one of the more. Go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say her reaction when Tibbs tells her, you know, that her husband's been been murdered. To me, it didn't come off as her, like, uh, you know, like avoiding him and not wanting him to like touch her. And comfort her as a racist thing is I think she just didn't want 
I imagine it could have been any of the the cops, and mm. she probably would have been that way because she is an outsider, right? That's what I thought. To this That's town, I, so too. she she doesn't want any stranger consoling mm-hmm. her over the loss of her husband. She doesn't know these people, right? Hmm. She doesn't know these people, and I feel like the way I would want a complete stranger consoling me if I lost a loved one, yeah, yeah at least not physically. Says- yeah, Somebody, they could be like, "I'm sorry," but I wouldn't like. I wouldn't necessarily want like a hug or anything from a complete stranger. Yeah. <laughs> like, especially somebody who, when I said, "What's going on with my husband?" Your husband's dead. I mean, like he's really not good with the bedside manner. And when she says, when she finally pulls herself together enough to say, "Can I have the room to myself, please?" I think she just didn't want anyone looking at her, touching her, seeing she, her breakdown. Yeah, she needed to. She needed a minute by herself to process this. So I didn't necessarily see that as racist either. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe I am guilty, like Inspector Tibbs, when it comes to Endicott of just assuming a white person reacting badly to a, a black guy. Maybe I'm 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 guilty of that. But that was just the should we say the vibe I got and. Maybe also bearing in mind the fact of 20, I colored by 2021 and the way people react to those who are not white. It could have just been a knee-jerk reaction for me, I suppose. But uh, you got, I mean, both of you make, make a good point, I suppose. Maybe when you are grieving, you want to kind of have, you know, be with yourself or people that you know, rather than, you know, be it a black person, a white person or whatever. It's just like, you don't want to be touched. I totally get it. I totally get it. I mean, or maybe just the fact that I guess coming from a, uh, a culture like Italy where we're all very touchy-feely people, even if it's a stranger, you still want to hug. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know you guys make a good point, you know, I, I, and I appreciate you both pointing that out. So let's get to our rather odd brother and sister in this picture. We have James Patterson as Lloyd Purdy, who our listeners might know from Lilith and Silent Night, Bloody Night, and Quentin Dean as Dolores Purdy, who you'll be relieved to know, folks, was not 16 at the time, but actually 23. So she was of legal age in her nude scenes. At least we have that. So, Rachel, when it came to the Purdies, what did you make of brother and sister? Uh, I, I, I think that her, I think Lloyd... Uh, my guess is, is Dolores probably has been uh running around with was it Ralph mm-hmm. uh, behind her brother's back. So when she's like, "I'm pregnant," um, <laughs> she <laughs> she probably didn't want to tell him who the the father was. Um. Uh, you know, probably because he probably wouldn't approve. Like, oh, you've been hanging around with a guy that works at the greasy diner on this off the side of the road. Like, get you know. probably he, you know, he's like, oh, you could do better. You know, <laughs> so then some person that probably seemingly has no no future, no potential in it or anything. Um, uh, I don't know how much he knows about her late night wanderings <laughs> around the house. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any parents around, so my guess is the you know the the mom and dad are probably gone, and he's you know in in the story he's an adult, and therefore he's probably in charge 
you know, has taken over as kind of both brother and parent. Um, so, you know, he may be asleep. He may, he may work night shifts or something. So she knows she can get away with you know, running around with nothing on around the house. Um, so you know, when he finds, finds his sister in trouble, uh, yeah, he just wants it the person responsible to, you know, <laughs> be, be, uh, take it a task for it, you know, cause she is 16. Uh, so, um, you know, he, she, you know, she tells her brother that it was Wood who did it probably cause she's seen him driving by the house, mm-hmm. uh, at night. So, um, uh, no, I, he, I think, I think Lloyd was just being a very protective older brother, mm-hmm. um, who let his anger, uh, get the best of him. And unfortunately I think it costs him his life. Uh, I, th- I think the, the gunshot there, the, at the end, I think that was fatal would be my guess they, they um, said it's fatal they said you killed him or something like that okay yeah 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 they did mention it yeah my, my dvd was a little skippy in spots so <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to ask you rachel did you buy the story of dolores having sex in the cemetery on tombstones uh, my guess is she probably did but probably not with officer wood my guess is that's something she and ralph probably did <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the fact that she said she seems to have an exhibitionist streak to begin with, so sex in a public, you know, a seemingly public place where, in theory, anybody could walk by, um, is yeah, probably she finds titillating, <laughs> would be my yeah. guess. Uh, which, you know, again, I, you know, I, I. My guess is her, her and Ra- her and Ralph's relationship probably was consensual. Um, I don't think she was ever raped by anybody. Um, yeah, you know, the <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, she's still sixteen, and it is illegal. Um, but I'm not going to, you know, slut shame her or anything. <laughs> Um, yeah, cause yeah, <laughs> hormones will make you do things mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a teenager between the hormones and the underdeveloped frontal lobe, <laughs> you're going to do things impulsively without thinking about the consequences, including having sex that potentially could lead to an unwanted pregnancy. Um, so you know, it's it's an unfortunate situation that she finds herself in. You know, sixteen, no parents. You know, in this dinky little town that you know, if she if she did go through with the pregnancy, would probably kill any chance of her ever getting out of this small town and making a life for herself. Um, so it would just perpetuate the cycle, probably. Um, so, you know, I can't. I can't really blame her uh, because she she's a victim of the the circumstance and 
the the system again the the system is broken and um who knows what's going to happen to <laughs> happen to her going forward true and and i also have to ask did you buy the fact that uh, that uh, uh, dolores was 16 uh, or did she look a little bit older to you uh, or it didn't matter or did you just wave it away and like okay she's 16 yeah i just is kind of wave it away you know a lot of times teenagers are played by 20 somethings so yeah it's like eh, whatever not every teenager is actually played by a teenager Occasionally it does happen, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just like, I, cause I was looking at, at her and I was like, wow, she's 16. Seriously. Okay. I mean, I don't know what's in the well, water. And <laughs> traditionally, genetically girls do mature. Yeah. Faster than men. This is true. Faster than boys. So, you know, my guess is she probably blossomed young, uh, which probably also, um has has probably led to her I, I don't I don't want to say promiscuity because I don't like I don't think she was around sleeping with everyone I she I think she was just sleeping with Ralph um but her her reaching you know uh puberty and therefore prime <laughs> sexual peakness I guess um she, she you know living in this small town the middle of the summer there's nothing to do <laughs> hormones are raging <laughs> boredom yeah. sets in again go, go watch bonnie and clyde release at least the same year it's it's it, she is yeah you, know, uh, you know she ends up with ralph instead of clyde <laughs> Very well put. And Zan, what did you make of, of the Purdies? Okay, well, first of all, as a horror fan and a fan of the franchise, the, the Phantasm franchise, yes, I do believe people have sex in cemeteries, especially. <laughs> These are interesting characters. Um, they are. <laughs> they are the Tom and Mayella Yule of this universe. <laughs> Um, they're, they're, they're definitely the sort of the tragic white trash story around town, I think, yeah. because she's 16 living with her brother. Either there's no parents or the parents are that bad <laughs> that she had to move in with her brother and his wife and his kids or but what, I don't quite know what's going on, but I think it's just the two of them in the house, but there's obviously no parents going on. So... We have this situation where, and Nick, you and I had a similar conversation about a similar character um, when we talked about Flash Gordon, mm -hmm. um, when we talked about Princess Aura, that she lives in the South, she's white trash, she's probably fairly uneducated, I would assume that maybe when the parents died or something, everybody had to get jobs, so either she's working after school, possibly dropped out of school, not doing well in school, there's a very good possibility of something like that. This is just an assumption based on other types of stories I've heard this way. But she does have what she refers to as a classy figure. And that's what she has. That's what she's got. That's what she can use. 
and she's using it. And I think she, I think she is an exhibitionist. I think she's getting her kicks knowing that she's naked in the window with the lights on late at night and people are driving by. She knows, she knows the cops are driving by. She can see the lights. You know, she sees that there are lights on the car. If she's looking hard enough after a couple of nights, she can see that it's, that it's officer Wood, And she's like, Oh, well, let's see what he thinks. And just sort of everyone in town knows about this girl. She's like, she's like the house that has really good, um, really good Christmas lights. Like word gets around and everybody winds up driving by at some point, I'm assuming. So she's getting her kick standing there in front of the, in front of the window, drinking a Pepsi. Um, Also, this is, this would definitely took place in the South with all of the soda pop we've got going on there. People were drinking Pepsi, lots of Coca-Cola, which is very Southern. It's headquartered in Georgia, lots of Dr. Pepper, which is headquartered in Texas. A lot of product placement in this film. I think a lot of that was because of being shot on location. Sure. Um, But yeah, there is a lot of free advertising that you wind up giving people because they'll just give you a sign that says Pepsi on it. If you put it outside your bar, <laughs> those, <laughs> those old cool, like Pepsi or Sprite or Coca-Cola signs, those are either free or real cheap because they say, Hey, we'll give you a marquee or we'll sell you this marquee for super cheap that you can put out in front of your restaurant. Um, but it just happens to have the Coca-Cola label on it. There's a really cool one in our, in our, in Columbus and it's horrible. I don't, it, it, it's, it, it's hard to, um, talk about it because it's it's definitely not it's definitely not uh culturally respectful anymore but there's like a a club for sioux people and they have an old like 1960s sprite sign that's really super cool um but it's called like the red men club i hate that i really mm. <laughs> that's difficult ouch Ouch, yes. <laughs> but um, but anyway, cool Sprite sign. But I'm sure they got it cheap because they put their... The Sprite was like, hey, you guys got a club? Here's a sign. There you go. Brand new marquee. So I think that's where a lot of that comes from. But yeah, the South loves its soda. It really loves its soda pop. So, you know, here she is drinking a Pepsi in front of the window. It's probably hot as balls. I mean, there's... <laughs> um, Biloxi Blues. You guys know the play Biloxi Blues? Yes. <laughs> uh, takes place in Biloxi, Mississippi. And they just they describe it in that play as, it's not just hot here, it's like Africa hot. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really, really hot in the South. Especially yes. in that deep South where, like, days go on forever. So she's probably really hot. This family probably can't afford fans, let alone air conditioning. So she's walking around, you know? And then maybe one day she does decide she wants a fountain drink, goes down to, you know, goes down to the sandwich shop, the Compton sandwich shop, you know, meets up with uh, Ralph, starts talking. Like Rachel said, I'll bet she did have sex on a, on a marble. First of all, you got it has to be dark for a while for marble to cool back down again because marble gets hot when it's in the sunlight. <laughs> but, you know, I'll bet she did try to find a private place. I'll bet he, he either lives someplace small or with roommates or with his family and she can't bring him back to her place. So where are they going to go? So when her brother does find out that she gets pregnant, 
the sad thing is, is that, is that she thinks that like a step up from her station it's officer wood <laughs> like Jeez. officer wood got me pregnant <laughs> like if it's gonna have to be a shotgun married thing i mean at least officer wood has a job but he's an idiot so but she knows that he's he's driving by and she also probably thinks that if she tells her brother that it's officer wood maybe he won't do anything like if his first instinct is to go get a shotgun and find out whoever knocked up his sister, if she tells him that it's a cop, maybe he'll calm down. But he doesn't. He he goes in and he's like, "Hey, I got to talk to the chief. I have to talk to talk to the chief now because he raped my sister. I don't care if she said she wanted to, I don't. And this was one of the most progressive things I heard in this movie. I don't care what she said. She's 16. That's still rape. I was like, good for you, Southern guy. Um, <laughs> that's impressive for 1967 in the South. I mean, especially when just a couple years ago, we had somebody in Texas who it came out that he had like relationships with 16 year olds and people were like well i like him even more now who doesn't want to have a relationship with a 16 year old so it's you know people are disgusting and the fact that this was decried in this movie by the whitest of the white trash in this movie i think was i think was really wonderful um and then to find out that it was that it was ralph and hey where do we go when we need when a girl gets in trouble. And I think that's an interesting thing too, that like the guys know about Mama Kaliba as well, but they know it through Packy. Like mm. everybody knows how to get in touch with Mama Kaliba. No, you know, maybe the girls don't know, like maybe, maybe the bad girls do, but the good girls don't. I don't quite know. And I'm using those in that's air quotes also sure. when I say good and bad girls. Um, but the guys know if they get a girl in trouble that it's, they got their responsibility to do something about it. So, you know, Packy can hook them up with Mama Kaliba. Um, Packy, who, by the way, I would just like to mention is played by Matt Clark, who uh, plays uh, the secretary of defense in my favorite movie, the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the internet. <laughs> so I just had to give a little shout out to Matt. Sure. Clark. Um, so, I think what happens to them at the end is very tragic because he's just trying to like look out for his sister, but it's kind of not his business. (laughs) Um, And there's such toxicity going on in that family where, you know, she's, first of all, it's sad for her that she thinks that this sort of, exhibitionism is you know the only way she's going to have any sort of control over what she can do um you know i'm not i'm not saying that it's sad that she's being sexual i think it's sad that late at night naked with a pepsi is the only way she feels like she can probably control her own body um and i think it's great that he wants to do the right thing but i don't think a shotgun is the way to do it um and there's it's sad that he, he has to be 
the sort of sacrificial lamb in this rumble that's about to happen at Mama Kaliba's place. It's like everybody knows that they're going there. Everybody knows what's up. And it's, we all know that everything's going to come to a head here. And it's, it's like the end of West Side Story. Somebody's going to die with all those weapons. And all, oh, yeah. all of those tempers, all of those opinions, all of those prejudices, you know, you've got the black guy from Philadelphia hanging around. You've got the abortionist black lady. You've got the pregnant white trash girl. You've got the other cops defending the black guy. I mean, like, everybody's so mad at everybody for their, based on their own judgments and prejudices, something bad's going to happen when you add shotguns, pipes, ropes, and chains into this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they did. It's almost like... it's like somebody was going to die and it's like, we're glad it wasn't Tibbs, but we're not happy that it was Purdy either. We don't want it to be Lloyd. We don't want it to be anybody. And it just, and it's again, we've said this before with a lot of movies. If you had just been sort of honest, like, Hey, me and me and Ralph, we've been hanging out and, um, I mean, because Ralph is, I mean, Ralph's disgusting. We find that out at the end of this movie. Ralph is a disgusting human being. Um, just the fact that he's lets flies in the cake pan. I mean, he's but you, just, you just have to look at the guy and you're immediately screaming, yeah, he's guilty. Yeah, the fact that he opens up the cake, you know, the cake serve, serving dish, there's flies in it, and he just puts it right back down with flies still in it. He's gross, okay? So... Yeah. You know, and if she had said, you know, we're, you know, we're going to, I don't, I don't know if she could have told her brother, we're going to take care of it. That's a very, very touchy subject with a lot of people. So I don't know what could have happened, but all these tempers flaring for all of these millions of reasons that they were flaring that night, something bad was going to happen. And it's sad that it was him because he was probably forced to become a man, quote unquote, you know, grow up. A lot faster than he needed to. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to talk to his sister. He probably has to work two jobs to keep that house. You know, that's it could have been their parents' house. Their parents died and they maybe owned it, but he's still probably working two jobs just to pay the damn taxes on it. So this is this is sort of a tragic family that's not doing the right thing, but not to the point where I think any of them should have died. And now what's going to... And now I feel bad, too, for... For Dolores, like, what's going to happen to her? You know, she's she's pregnant by a murderer. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole town knows she's about to go get an abortion. So now she's the tramp who not only she's the not only is she the tramp that walks around naked in front of her window, but she's the tramp that's going to go get an abortion because she got pregnant by a murderer. I mean, I feel really bad for this girl at this point. I definitely felt very bad for her myself. I mean, as I mentioned, they are a rather odd couple, if you will. I mean, Lloyd, to Rachel's point, is the protective brother who I think doesn't want to either see or he ignores what he actually does know about what his sister gets up to. Is He does seem very freaked out when Dolores gives her little story about take being taken to the cemetery and having sex on tombstones with Sam Wood, which I could see it being a thing he would be into, or possibly even Ralph, whom we will be getting to shortly. It He did bother me because, you know, there is once again that very racist streak, and I did want to hit this guy every other word he spouted out, 
when it came to Tibbs, because I was all about Inspector Tibbs when it came to this film. But yes, he was progressive at the same time and wanted to protect his sister, wanted to be there for her. And I'm sure it was very much a tragic situation when it came to the Purdies. But yeah, I just really wanted to slap this guy. Every time he had something to say about Tibbs, like, don't knock Inspector Tibbs, man. And Dolores, I mean, I'm, I, I'm actually with Bart Simpson. The human body is a thing of beauty, and there's nothing wrong with Dolores being an exhibitionist or flirtatious, though she does it, of course, to her own advantage. Like you've been pointing out, Zan, is it, she uses what her mama gave her for her again because that's what she has. And you think to yourself, where, she's, where is she going to go from here? Uh, post-abortion and everything else because she will very much be as like the scarlet letter kind of kind of situation with a scarlet woman where you know most folks will probably see her as you know the slut of the town if you will which is going to be a very unfortunate situation for her also still being the 60s and in the south and women not being given should we say the recognition they're given today and still today women deserve more recognition i'm just saying but it, uh, I, I did feel very ba- bad, especially for Dolores. And I agree, uh, Lloyd didn't necessarily have to die, but I, I was just so so irked with him about how he was bad-mouthing Tibbs. I guess when I was watching this film, I was, I was very much the, um, who, the, uh, the Tibbs hooligan, to use a, a football metaphor, of like, you don't bad-mouth Inspector Tibbs. So, so yeah, they were... They I, were. Used, I guess I just sort of got used to people bad-mouthing Tibbs. It's like, Oh, okay. One more white trash idiot thinking they're, uh, you know, one more racist white trash idiot. Okay, whatever. Tibbs could, <laughs> Tibbs could, Tibbs is just like I said. Tibbs is just so much better than all of these people in a million different ways. Yeah, because he, he's just sitting back and saying, "Okay, whatever. Another another white dude I have to deal with." So so yeah. I, I I totally get it. So finally, let's get to Virgil's initial suspect on one hand and the real killer in this story on the other. We have Larry Gates as Endicott, whom uh, our listeners might know from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Guiding Light, and character actor Anthony James as Ralph. So, Zan, what, you, know, you mentioned him quite a bit throughout this episode here. But yeah, when it comes to Endicott and Ralph, what do you make of these two? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and start with Ralph and mm-hmm. show, show my hand here a little bit. Sure. Um, one of my one of the things I really, really loved about this movie that I don't think I noticed when I watched it previously was the subtle direction and how there were so many subtle little things that just told you kind of everything you needed to know in one little thing or showed you one little thing that seems completely benign and commonplace, but for the time just was, you know, an absolute shocker. You know, for example, the scene where he's, where Tibbs is examining the body and you see these, you see these black hands very gently cradling these dead white man's hands. Mm. Like, this black man, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to fix this for you. I'm going to find out who I'm going to find out who killed you. And I'm going to be the one that makes this right. And that's not something you saw. And I'm sure it's nothing any of these people from this town ever even thought they would see. Um, but there's a little, 
there's a little a little something every there like just or even like when we you know when we go to Endicott's house and the close up is on the freaking lawn jockey. Oh jeez. Which is like one of the worst things or all you need to know about the cars that are ramming into Tibbs is that they have Confederate flags on them. That's all you need to know. <laughs> and that I think is just brilliant on Jewison's part. Also, literally the first person we see in this movie is the killer killing something. Mm-hmm. He's got that rubber band and he's killing the flies. So he's telling you from the beginning, here's somebody that kills stuff. Here you go, kids. Have a good ride. This is We're going to begin and end with this guy. And you think at the beginning of this movie that this is exposition for what this town is like. This is a small town where the most hopping joints are the one pool hall. And then this sandwich joint on the, you know, on the, on the, the highway, I guess. And it's slow. There's not a lot of people here. Not a lot of people come visit. The guy who runs the sandwich shop is just, he's got nothing to do. Um, it's hot. So there's flies everywhere. So this is all he's, you know, there, there's nobody in the restaurant. So he's just passing the time. It's, you know, it seems like when we first see Ralph that he's just like, okay, here's what we're in for. Slack-jawed yokel, white trash people in a southern town where nothing ever happens. It's in the middle of summer, so it's hot as hell. Nothing's going on, whatever. But no, he literally shows us the killer killing something as the first person you see in this movie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is which is when you look back on it, you're like, oh my god, that's freaking brilliant. <laughs> so um Ralph he weirds you out from the beginning because he's so like um he's just weird, you know, with his rubber band and he's like, I'll give you that cake for free and you know and then he's just there's just something weird about him. I mean he's just he's unsettling. But then I'm thinking to myself, well, I think any white trash slack jawed yokel is unsettling. I don't like racist southern people i will admit it i don't like racist southern people um so maybe i was thinking that's why i find him unsettling i don't know um and then when you find out that that's who who did it and that he was first of all you're thinking like how did he get dolores <laughs> i mean like she may be the white trash poor girl, but oh my God, is she a, a way out of his league? Thank you very much. Oh, she does yes. have a classy figure. And, you know, what her mama gave her is quite lovely. So how the hell did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you hate him when they're doing their, their, you know, let's walk me through the night you found the body process. He comes in and gives, gives Wood a Coke and, you know, hey, I've got some of that pie. And then he's like, oh, what do you what do you want, Virgil? I ain't serving him. And you're like, are you just racist as hell like everybody else in this stupid ass town? Or do you know that he's going to be the one that catches you? Like, are you are you aware 
that this this guy from out of town that has no biases personally about who's who in this town is going to figure this out. <laughs> so, um, but then when you realize that, yeah, he cashed a check for a certain amount of money and it's now missing and what's going on and somebody somebody needs an abortion so that's probably where the money's going and then you see her see dolores walk up to mama's place and you see somebody in the shadows and you realize it's ralph and i'm like oh my god why like my, I, I knew at that second that ralph was the killer and then you're like but wh why and then you realize it's just some dumb mugging i mean this whole thing that goes from being this political, financial, you know, run the out of town or out of town so I can keep my profitable for me, but keep my employees in poverty business going. It goes, it's like, it's like the end of Hot Fuzz where they have this whole elaborate thing where it's like, no, they just looked at me weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh my God, all this is, is he just mugged somebody. He, he knew that this is the, out of, the the guy from out of town. He probably has money because he's, he's an industrialist. He's, you know, building this factory. He gave me a ride. I asked him, you know, hey, where's your plant going to be? He shows me. He gets out. And I think I'll just, I'll just, you know, knock him and then say somebody crept up in the bushes. I didn't mean to kill him. He didn't mean to do it. He just wanted to rob him. And you're like, wow, this is, this is so simple. This is so simple and so every day, just the person it happened to be as a victim had different enemies. And so it, you know, it, it really does throw you off the scent of this. I mean, he's, Endicott is, is the reddest of the red herrings that I think he should have been raising poinsettias or something, just something red. <laughs> because... He's, like I said before, Endicott's really, really good for this murder. Um, they're, they're getting close to breaking ground on where the factory is. They're out-of-towners. I mean, the South does not like the North coming down there and telling them what to do. Um, that's a long-standing thing. Um, there's lots of stories that end with like, you know, you don't know how we do things down here. So here we have this guy from Chicago, probably, probably quote unquote, young money. <laughs> Cause we all know that the Endicott's made their money off the backs of slaves. So he comes down here thinking he's going to modernize this, this town that is essentially stuck in time. You know, it's, it's got a, it's got a pool hall. It's got a hardware store. Um, it's it's got a it's got a small little downtown, but its economy is cotton. It's still cotton. And that's still the Endicott family. And the Endicott family doesn't they haven't modernized either. All they have is cotton also. And like I said, with the invention of the cotton gin, you don't you know, you don't need people working for pennies twelve hours a day to to field your cotton anymore. So they're on their way out. Anyway, the only thing I think that's keeping them alive is the fact that there are people in this town who they can exploit. And that's why they're still there. And he sees that going away and he's up on his house on the hill looking down on people. They are 
cultivating the crop that is going to make money. He's cultivating his crop that is a hobby. Like he also works with dirt and plants, but just as a hobby, you know, tending the orchids. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's not so much the idle rich, but he definitely has a hobby that is like, and even Tib says, how do you get him to grow in this climate? Like it's that hubris that I think is, I think is an inherently, I think hubris is an inherently human trait, but I also think it's an inherently white trait. A lot of the time, the hubris to think that you can do anything just because you have the whim Mm-hmm. That's why we have such problems with cultural appropriation and um, just anything a white person decides they want to try, they feel like they should be able to, whether or not it's a good idea. And if you don't have the climate for orchids, why would you want to grow orchids? <laughs> like, why would you want to? Why would you want to do that to yourself? <laughs> so there's all of that hubristic stuff going on, and he's obviously. I mean, this, I mean, aside from the fact that there's cars at this place, I mean, this looks like it could be a plantation out of, you know, out of 1815. It's, it's gone with the wind all it's over gone again. With the wind for sure. You know, you've got the, like I said, the, you know, the butler who answers the door has probably had that job for 40 years and should by all means be retired, but he's not because it's not like he's got a retirement plan. Um, and then they answer the door. I mean, he goes, you know, and then here's this, here's this old white man that has been brought up in old white racism and has old white money that has been built off hundreds of years of slavery, really, truly believing that the only way the Negro can live a decent life is if the white people tend to them the way they need to like their children or plants. And here this man sees a black man in a in a white man's suit walk into his house like he belongs there, like he has a right to be there, and challenges him, accuses him of hiring a murder. I don't think he thinks, I don't think Tibbs thinks for a second that Endicott actually killed Colbert. I think he I think he thinks he hired it done. Mm-hmm. Um but to have him come in his own home, his own greenhouse, and accuse him of murder enrages him so bad that he smacks Tibbs across the face. And then when Tibbs smacks him back and nothing happens, he doesn't know what to do. I think he realizes that his that the that the that the day of his being the 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 apex creature in <laughs> in in the south the alpha of you know being the, the the rich white male in the south and he gets whatever he wants just because of that those days are over that if he can get smacked by a black man in his own greenhouse and the chief of police is there and doesn't even do anything about it he's on his way out and in more ways than one. Like I said, once this factory comes in, people are going to quit that horrible cotton job. They're going to go over and work for the Colbert factory. So he's, he's really weeping for his, you know, racist, oppressing, horrible way of life being, you know, going away. And 
when his butler leaves, you know, his poor butler went and got lemonade for nothing. Um, when his butler leaves, he doesn't say anything, but he just shakes his head. Like, and I don't quite know how to interpret that because, you know, in, a, in another Sidney Poitier masterpiece from 1967, um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you have their maid, who I, I can't think of her name, Wheezy, can't think of her name right now, where she's giving him, she's giving Sidney Poitier a hard time for being like, uppity and not knowing his station and not knowing his place and you ain't even that good looking um <laughs> which is not true Sidney Poitier is a beautiful beautiful man <laughs> so you know you you have that kind of character that sort of I don't want to call I don't want to say self-loathing I don't want to say brainwashed I don't want to say anything that severe but that character that we saw a lot of the time where you have the black character resigned to the fact that what they've been taught about being second to white people or less than white people just is the way it is and don't make waves and mm-hmm. don't try to, you know, don't try to think otherwise because either it's just not going to happen or your heart's going to get broken or you're going to die, you know, for whatever reason that makes someone resign to this is my station and that's how it is. And that's how it always should be. I can't tell if this Butler is that type of character or if he's more of a, um, that's shaking his head. Like that's what you get when you smack somebody, they're going to smack you back. (laughs) You know, like, is he sort of secretly happy this happened? Or if he's sort of shaking his head, really realizing like this, you know, old white man is living in the past. Mm. So I, I think can't tell. I can't I th- tell. I think it's maybe this the 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 latter over the former, possibly. But uh, I would really like that to be the case because that's you know when, when I do when I do watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner the um, the. And I'm looking up her name because it's driving me crazy that I can't remember it. I think it's Tilly. Uh, yeah, it's Tilly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Isabel Sanford. Damn, I could not remember that name. I've seen that name a million times in my life watching the Jeffersons because she's wheezy in the Jeffersons. Right. Um, I feel so bad for that character that she's sort of thinking like, you know, why do black people think that they can, you know, be uppity and, and be professors and you know, all this stuff? It's like, um, because anybody should be able to do that because nobody should be beaten down the way white people have beaten down everybody they've ever met. <laughs> you know, um, because nobody should have to feel like, oh, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm indigenous, I'm Asian, whatever. I can't be such and such. Yeah. Um, it's like, no, the, the only thing that you, you, you can't be, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be the opposite side of white hubris of like, I can do whatever I want. The only thing you can't be is whatever you decide you shouldn't be. I mean, that's what, that's where your limitations should be. They should be your own limitations. Like I don't ever want to be a skydiver. I'm terrified of heights. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the guy 
They're test roller coasters. I hate that stuff. Those are my own limitations. But no one should be able to say to me, well, you're a woman. You, can ha you can't have that job. And that's no one should be telling anybody of any gender, race, nationality, anything that they shouldn't be something. So that that character breaks my heart. So I am hoping that this butler is the latter rather than the former. <laughs> but yeah, Endicott winds up and what's the beauty of Endicott's character is that he's really good for this murder, but he's obviously not the murderer. So his character is even more out, you know, more ineffective than ever. You know, he's he's even more useless. Not only is his way of life a way of the past, not only are his values and opinions a way of the past, not only is his industry a, a thing of the past, now he's not even a suspect. He's a completely ineffective, nothing character. And he's the most ineffective nothing character in this movie. And he is the rich white man, descendant of slave owners. And I love that about this movie. It's very true because it could have been very facile to make Endicott the villain. I, I do agree, Zan. And Rachel, when it comes to you, you know, you being obviously very familiar with MCU TV shows where we get a lot of red herrings and then the real villain is revealed. What did you make of our red herring Endicott and our true villain, Ralph? Yeah, I mean... I, I can totally see why Tibbs went there. You know, if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. Sure. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> considering how, like, openly racist the cops have been in this town to him since the moment they saw him. So I can't, I can see why it in his mind, it's not that huge of a stretch that some guy like Endicott would think he's powerful enough to be able to get away with murder. Um, you know, whether he did it himself or he hired someone to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't blame Tibbs for that. What is it about bad guys that they like doing things that require such, like, calm and, like, gentleness <laughs> like raising flowers like he's he, you know he's in this uh you know this greenhouse is, is tending to these orchids just so tenderly and uh you know like they're the most delicate thing in the world and i was having flashes of president snow from the hunger games oh yes uh, with his roses you know <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, bad guys and flowers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Etika is just like the thing is, is even though he's not guilty of murder, he has now been. Yeah, you know, if I if I wanted to take the more positive. Uh, kind of assumptions on how this story is going to go after the credits start rolling that Endicott will now find himself essentially 
you know, without power because he's a dinosaur. He's going the way of the dinosaurs. Um, as far as, you know, people's perceptions of what, you know, what he comes from, um, in his ideals and, uh, you know, living in the past, you know, having African-American people still picking his cotton because it's cheaper to pay them next to nothing than it is to buy, you know, the technology that in the grand scheme of things would make him more money because he'd be more efficient. You know, his cotton would be picked and processed more efficiently (laughs) than by the human hand. Uh, But uh, yeah, yeah. He may not be guilty of murder, but he, he may not technically be breaking any laws, but socially he is guilty of so much. Oh, I think he's guilty of murder. His whole, there was a day when I could have had you shot. I guarantee he had somebody shot at one point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's not guilty of this particular murder. (laughs) Not this one. Yeah, not this one. But I think there's definitely something shady in his past. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he's just, you know, we want to see those types of people go the way of the of the dinosaurs. And unfortunately, they have not. Um, They just they may dress differently and may, you know, look a little different. But the, you know, a racist is a racist is a racist at the end of the day. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't matter what they look like and how they dress, whether they're. You know, Endicott in his gardening garb with, you know, his tools and everything, or they're wearing polos and carrying tor- tiki torches. Uh, it does not matter. <laughs> so, um, and then Ralph is, he and Wood are kind of two, two idiots in a pod. Um, <laughs> he's just, uh, he's, kind of dumb too um yeah he he uh yeah the fact that this whole thing boils down to i just wanted to rob him i just hit him too hard is but you know what people have been killed over dumber things true at the you know in real life not just in in movies, you know, we hear about it all the time. Even now, you know, people will get into fights at kids' birthday parties or people killing each other over flat screen TVs on Black Friday. Uh, you know, we are, as human beings, we are perfectly capable of killing someone for the dumbest reasons. Um, you know, even if, even on accident. Uh, so, yeah, especially the fact that you know, uh, you know, uh, this this factory owner, you know, this out of towner was nice enough to give him a ride, <laughs> and he asked for a job, and he's like, "Yeah, sure." You know, I'm sure he probably needed to go through the formal process, but still, you know, a thousand people is a lot, so I'm sure they could find something for him, and. You know, he's like, I don't even know where it's going to be. And he's nice enough to take him to the construction site 
you know, if this guy's this nice, couldn't he have been like, hey, you know, you're being really nice to me and I really appreciate it. And I look forward to working at your factory and I promise to work really hard. By the way, could you lend me a hundred dollars until I get my first paycheck? <laughs> you know, I've, I've, you know, me and my girl doesn't even have to call her by name because the chances are this guy doesn't would know her anyway. Um, and just be like, yeah, me and my girl, we found, you know, we're in a little bit of trouble and we need some money and we don't have any family. We don't have anybody to turn to. And, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing this guy would probably loan him the money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, why did you feel like you need to hit him? You're just going to ask. I thought he would give it, it to you. But ugh. people are dumb sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. People are And I say that as somebody who has done some dumb things in my life. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that from some sort of holier than thou perspective. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I have not. I have not been a. You know, I have not made smart decisions for my entire life. That is for. That is for absolute yeah. sure. <laughs> but I know not to hit people on the head. <laughs> yeah, I know not to rob the one man in the city that is going to give me my chance of not being at this diner for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I suppose we all we all are guilty of doing. You know. Stupid and dumb things in our lives. You know, nobody, of course, is perfect, obviously. And uh, but yeah, I these two characters I think were interesting, obviously, because of course you know the red herring of Endicott. I was actually just literally waiting for you know a Mac the Max Steiner theme from Gone with the Wind to play when they do get to the cotton plantation. I was like, wait a minute, this is Gone with the Wind all over again, and. Uh, yeah, obviously all signs point to Endicott being the guilty party. You know, the fact that he might have probably, you know, spent some money and had hitmen or what have you get rid of Colbert. But uh, I was so satisfied and happy that that was not the case. And it was, you know, very different in that sense. But Larry Gates did a great job as Endicott, making him so just easily hateable. I could not stand this man. And from the slap he gives... Uh, Tibbs, just the way he carries himself. He is very much that racist from the bygone era. You know, Rachel, you made the the point, of course, of sadly, these kind of folks are still with us, except they, they possibly dress and act differently. But it's still sadly very much something that's present in 2021, you know, going moving from as forward from 1967. But uh, I, I think it was it was you know, it was important that we had a character like this and also obviously to also bring um, Tibbs's own assumptions of, oh, yeah, he's a he's a plantation owner. He's a racist, etc. Obviously, he's he's our guy. And then him realizing that it's not as it, it wasn't the case. But I loved it. I, I, I thought it was it was a great character to have. And Ralph, well, he remind he could have been managing the diner from uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003, the Marcus Nispel version, not the OG Toby, Toby Hooper one, which I think is way better than all of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. But that's a story for another podcast. But uh, he was he had like the creepiness about him. He was just so kind of slimy. And the moment he comes on, I'm like, yeah. This guy could definitely be in in a in a slasher film, as in being that creepy kind of guy. And uh, 
I just didn't find any sort of redeeming qualities when it came to Ralph. I just could not stand his weaseliness. But but I, I guess it's also the trait of a of a good actor. And Anthony James, of course, being the character actor that he is, knows how to play these characters to a T. So let's get to how this film ended. After all our crime stuff is wrapped up, Tibbs boards the train bound for Philadelphia as, as Gillespie, having carried his suitcase, respectfully bids him farewell. So, Rachel, what did you make of the ending to this film? I mean, it's the most satisfying ending we could get. Mm. The, you know, uh, you know Tibbs gets to leave. He finally gets to leave. <laughs> I'm sure there's a part of him that's like, you know, thank the Lord above, I'm finally getting out of this podunk little town. Uh, you know, back to his probably, uh, he's probably got a nice desk and uh, at the precinct he works at in Philly and, you know, his, his, his fellow comrades that know him, you know, who he is and as a person and not just, you know, as a, you know, a black guy. Um, and he's probably like, next time I visit my mama, I'm going to find a different route. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to come through here anymore. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it, it ends in a way that, you know, if you want to be more positive than I am, uh, mm-hmm. you could be like, oh, you know, maybe things could maybe start to change around this tiny little town. But the pessimist in me, especially considering the real world, uh, yeah, I'm not as as optimistic about it so because i unfortunately it's it's still the case you know you're still gonna there are still um uh yeah they they may need to be a you know a bit more uh covert although i think some probably aren't because they don't care um but you're still gonna come across uh you know just drive around Small town USA, especially in the South, um, you're going to come across uh, your like your uh, uh, what's the sundown towns, mm-hmm. uh, you know, places like that. And if you don't know what a sundown town, look it up, but you'll be sad. Uh, <laughs> it'll make you sad and upset. Um, but places like that still exist where. You know, if you're not the right color and you're you find yourself in that town, especially after sunset, after dark, yeah, they can't guarantee that you're gonna leave there alive, unfortunately, or in one piece. Uh, it's 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 a very, very unfortunate thing that that places like that still exist. Um, so, yeah, I I wanted to I want to have a positive outlook for this this town, but um, it, it's really really hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I totally totally hear you. And yes, folks, also if you are fans of uh, 
Lovecraft Country. There you very much get the concept of what a sundown town is, and they do show it and and and, and everything that it entails for sure. And Zan, when it comes to you, what did you make of our ending? Well, I I I really like that. Like I said before, that this sensationalized murder or this murder that we think is going to be this political economic espionage turns out to be some guy robbing somebody and just didn't didn't mean to kill anybody but this is just what happened i think that's fascinating i think that's a fascinating choice for an ending like this i mean it could have become this super political (laughs) um crazy crazy story but it no it just was the everyday thing it just happened to be an everyday thing that happened to a guy who isn't the everyday guy for this town. So I thought that was a really cool way of doing it. It was a good red herring because we really didn't, I mean, you know, also an an incredibly ineffective character is Ralph. Ralph's incredibly ineffective. So the fact that we're just, we're just not even, we're not even on his scent at all in this is I think is very well done. Um, I do like the fact that in, in spite of all that, we, you know, in spite of the fact that, you know, it's not Endicott, it's not the guy that we think it is. We, we do go for the truth. We do go for the, I don't, I don't want to make any, I don't want to make light of Colbert's death or anything like that, but it really kind of is the mundane outcome. Mm. There's not much. There's nothing sensational about it. It's, it's a mugging that went wrong. I mean, we've, it's a story we've heard a million times. Yeah. And, um, so it's not necessarily huge news unfortunately i mean unfortunately i mean it's huge news that this guy that was going to start this factory is now killed but you know a a mugging gone wrong is not necessarily something we we expected so i think that's really cool that this movie does not end the way you expect it to it doesn't give you suspects you know you really are kept guessing like who the hell did this and why um you can't quite figure out what the what the um what the point is what's the, what's the reason for all of this to <laughs> so i i dig that about this and i love the fact that it's not some hallmark movie where um tibbs decide you know what i'll stay here in this town i think they need me i mean it's it's not something like that i mean he goes back to his life he goes back to philadelphia which he totally should be doing um he, you know, he has a life. I mean, if nothing else, he's making a shit ton more money than, than he would. <laughs> and after what his chief just put him through, he's probably going to ask for a raise. <laughs> he's like, look, I don't know why you sent me down there, but um, you need to, like, never mention that. Uh, you know, next time, next time I get arrested, don't make me work with the cops that arrested me, please. I beg of you, sir. <laughs> um, so, and the, you know, I do like the fact that they they are respectful of each other at the end of it 
they're not necessarily friends because they really, you know, as sad as it is because they are, you know, lonely dudes, it would be nice if they could have a friendship with each other. This is not his scene, man. I mean, it, it really is not his scene. I mean, I can I can completely understand him not wanting to be friends with Rod Steiger. It is not his job to teach Rod Steiger to be anti-racist. That is not his burden. That's not his job. That's not his responsibility. And that's what their friendship would be. It would be a constant teaching moment every week, which, you know, kind of was on the show. There's always a teaching moment every week. Of here's how you not be racist. <laughs> and it's also not his job or his burden to teach him how to be a decent freaking cop. You know, if Rod Steiger's not a good cop, that's that's his fault. That's 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 his fault. That's this town's problem. That's the mayor's issue. It's it's not his. I feel like if they did wind up friends at the end of this, it would not benefit Tibbs the way it would benefit Gillespie mm. and so I'm you know I'm kind of glad they just sort of leave it as you know you taught me one thing you know maybe maybe I'll I'll keep learning more but that's actually kind of not your not your responsibility and I, I like that I like that this doesn't have that sort of you know if you know if you're ever in Philadelphia look me up buddy kind of things because this is not a this is not a buddy this is not a buddy cop story. This is definitely a, we are from different, a big city in the North is very different than a small town in the South. Small town in the North is not that different from a big city. (laughs) The small town in the North is not that different than a small town in the South, but a big city in the North is very different than a small town. And so they're different guys. They're, they're different guys. They have different lives. They have different goals. They have different things. So, you know, I like that they're not like now the best of friends or something like that, because I feel like that would have been cliched. And at the time, incredibly unrealistic. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that this guy would be like now best friends with this racist white shitty cop when he's like the best cop in his you know in his division it's like you know is the is the is the captain of the football team going to be best friends with the with the guy who hates football no not necessarily (laughs) it's unrealistic so i really did like how this movie ended and i liked how you don't really know what tibbs is thinking when he's leaving when he's on the train like you're wondering if he's thinking like huh Interesting. I never really have been in a position where my prejudice needed to be put in check. Um, or is he thinking, thank God I'm the hell out of this town? Or is he thinking, you know what? I wonder how much it would cost to move my mother to Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing it's two and three. (laughs) I think, yeah, I definitely think he's like, you know, that old folks home on 39th seems pretty nice. I wonder if my mother would like it there. Um, <laughs> but you don't know. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's an ambiguous ending that you don't really have um, an idea of where everything's going to go from here on out. It's like you hope Rod Steiger is going to be a good cop or a better cop after this. Um, 
you hope nothing like this ever happens to Tibbs again. I hope Tibbs becomes the captain. Like I hope he, you know, he retires as like the highest up that you can possibly be in his police division in Philadelphia. Um, I don't want bad things for Gillespie, but I want better things for Tibbs because he's just a better person. <laughs> so, but at, you know, I don't necessarily want them to be buddies. That that doesn't make sense to me. So I, I did. I liked how this movie ended quite a bit. I think it was a very fair ending indeed. I mean, had you given this probably to somebody like Frank Capra, they probably would have been, you know, kind of singing Kumbaya and hugging each other and oh you know, my saying, God. <laughs> saying, I love you, brother. I love you too, brother, you know, kind of thing. But uh, I think it was a very fair ending indeed. And it, it was curious to see, you know, the way they played off each other at the end of the film, knowing how much, should we say, love Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier had for each other. I mean, you see this especially at the, the, the 40th Academy Awards and how supportive they were both of each other and the speech that Rod Steiger gave at the Academy Awards when it came to, you know, the, the, the situation and stuff. So seeing them almost rather almost aloof and I actually, you know, used the shot of um, Gillespie and Tibbs sitting on the bench completely apart very much sort of sort of signifying the whole concept of we're from two different worlds. You know, there's the whites on one side and there's the blacks on the other. And that's where we're at in the, in, in this time period. And sadly it seems to be this, the situation here too. But I did like the fact that they did seems to, they've been developing some respect for each other. Like you were saying, Zan, not necessarily friendship, but I think there is that mutual respect. I mean, I don't see, like you were saying, Tib saying, come and have a Philly cheesesteak uh, over in Philly anytime you're over. You know, look me up. I don't see that happening. But uh, there is hope, I think, by the end of this film. And, um, and of course, then you get to see more when it comes to, to uh, movie two and movie three. But I think it was a very fair ending indeed. I didn't expect Amen to be playing at the end of this film, unlike Lilies of the Field. But uh, I think it was very fair, and I think Norman Jewison did a great, way, did a great job in wrapping this movie up. So let's get to our We Were the Academy segment. This film did win Best Picture during the 40th Academy Awards, held at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on April the 10th of 1968, actually six days after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Your host for the night was Bob Hope, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Julie Andrews. This film was running up against four other movies, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, a.k.a. He Had Sex With Your Mom Like A Lot, and guess who's <laughs> coming to dinner? <laughs> I had to use that wonderful Zan reference. I had to. <laughs> so, so did In the Heat of the Night deserve to ride the golden train to victory, or should it have been left on the platform while one of its fellow nominees punched the first-class ticket? What do you think, Zan? That uh, 100% absolutely this deserved to win. Um, like I said before, this was the first time that I had seen all of the movies before we got started. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I like them all. Um, Dr. Doolittle the least, but you know, we know how much you love Rex Harrison. <laughs> you know how much I love Rex Harrison. That oh, don't even why why did you get me started on Rex Harrison? <laughs> um, <laughs> as you know, as much as I can't stand Rex Harrison, I do love me some animals. So yes. <laughs> and just the idea of animals testifying in a courtroom is friggin' hilarious. <laughs> um, 
I love Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, I, I, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner does such a good job of showing you all different kinds of white people who don't think they're racist. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, the, this this whole concept of... Um, the, the, this you know this daughter who's raised by this intelligentsia family to believe that everybody's equal even though they've got a you know I mean I, I, I don't believe that they treat their black mate like a, like a like a slave or anything like that but it's definitely I, there is a class indicator there yeah. um, so you've got the white people who believe they're not racist because they're not overtly racist, even though they really only interact with other black people when they work for them. <laughs> and then you have the young, fire-hearted, does-it-all-the-wrong-way activist type, you know, this is what should happen, and you're terrible, and we got a little bit of um you know, just the, the way the daughter in that movie is, is so, so angry. I don't care who you are or who you're marrying. If you bring somebody home for the first time to meet your parents and then say, oh, and by the way, we're getting married like in two days. Um, that's going to irk just about anybody's parents. I don't care what race the person is. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's going to irk. It's going to irk your parents. And mm -hmm. I think that she... While I, I, while I do believe her parents like him, and I do believe that they are now realizing, okay, we're putting our money where our mouth is, we are still really weirded out that our daughter is marrying this, like, much older guy who's, like, barely divorced. <laughs> so, there's reasons <laughs> for her parents to be irked by this that are not racial and she's making it racial she's making it and even he tells her honey you got to admit that we did spring a lot on, on, on them today <laughs> so you know you have you, you sort of have an upstart that sees racism and everything and has the white savior complex and the daughter is very much the white savior complex so it does a great job and i will say that and your parents are Catherine hepburn and spencer tracy so Right, exactly. So, um, and and it does have one of my all-time favorite things that is a reference that my family has used forever. Like, um, my mom is definitely one of those people who will ask me if there's if it's some if is this the thing that I like, um, especially when it comes to music because my mom doesn't have much of an ear for music. Um, she'll say, "Is this that song I like?" or "What's that song I like?" stuff like that. So. <laughs> I've, we've started calling any when any of us ask like is that that thing I like we call it yes it's fresh Oregon it's fresh Oregon boysenberry because mm. the ice cream scene like is what's that thing I had last time fresh Oregon boysenberry okay I don't think this is it but I like it I mean that whole that whole scene is just so perfect with we're gonna get ice cream and I'm gonna get the flavor I like but I don't know what it's called it's uh, this movie's dear to my heart for that reason the graduate such a different story such a such a you know such a subtle dry almost dark comedy um and has such a wonderful scene in it about what getting pregnant can do to women 
and how the only people that really understand it are other women. And it's the scene where she's talking about he's trying to ask her questions about her young life and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they, they talk. Elaine Robinson was conceived in a Ford. A Ford. I can't believe it. And like, that's what he takes away from this really deep conversation where she tells him something major. Like, does anybody really want to marry that character? Like, <laughs> you know, Mr. Robinson is not a character that is anybody's dream guy. Okay. I mean, nothing against Murray Hamilton or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a great they, mayor, and in this movie, he doesn't make a great, a great husband. So you would but, think, but you would think Benjamin had a, uh, uh, you know, Benjamin would have a, a, a straighter head on his shoulders, considering his dad's Mr. Feeney. Yeah, his dad is Mr. Feeney. His dad is Kit. <laughs> thank you very much. His dad is the voice of Kit. That so, too. So, um, but yeah, he's Mr. Feeney. Um, so the, the whole conversation they're having about how she was an art major in college. And he's like, but I thought you didn't want to talk about art. And then, then he just sort of brushes it off. And like, I guess he must've lost interest in it over the years. No, she got knocked up by some guy that she probably let coerce her into having sex in the back of a Ford. And now her life is over because she has to be a mom and a wife to this guy. She can't stand. And she had to give up her art degree. That's why she's so unpleasant (laughs) and there's so many things to unravel in the graduate it's so wonderful bonnie and clyde one of the greatest movies about anti-heroes we've ever seen bonnie and clyde are fascinating characters on their on in their own right they practically write themselves um beta does a fantastic job with this movie um and they really do show you that you can feel you can root for the villains and you can, you can feel sorry for the villains. I mean, you may think of them as, you know, a, a dust bulb, um, a Robin hood, but they killed people. All right. Mm. They're not good people, but they're not, they're not people with a lot more choices, you know, and you really, and it, you're, it, you, it amazes me when I realize how much I root for them in this movie. Um, so th- these are all these are all great movies, but in the heat of the night, I think makes its point. It, it's it's like The Graduate, where it has subtle, very subtle commentary on women's lives. It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where it shows you different levels of racism, but the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher in, in the heat of the night. Nobody is going to murder Sidney Poitier when he goes for ice cream. So the the stakes are higher, and like I said, it does that thing of showing you that we all have our own prejudices, and what makes us the better man is admitting to them. Um, and like I said before about Norman Jewison, in the direction, I love Mike Nichols. Don't get me wrong. Everybody, you know, Mike Nichols, Arthur Penn, Stanley Kramer, Richard Brooks, Norman Jewison, are all fantastic directors who did all fantastic movies this year. But with all of those subtle little things that I mentioned earlier about Jewison, about, you know, showing us the killer killing something as our first scene of the movie. Um, Even little things like the scene where he takes Tibbs to the mechanic to get him a car. And he says to him, do you need a place to stay? I'll find a hotel. He just laughs at him like, where the hell are you going to get a hotel that'll let your ass stay there? 
he just he, he's like look dude i know this town better than you do you're not going to find a hotel that's going to let you in little just little things like that little little subtle wonderful little things that show you how hot it is in there how slow this town is how just so many subtle wonderful things that jewison did i i honestly think jewison should have gotten this oscar um it is a crime and i'm sure that they left him out because what movie oh i would like to think that <laughs> i would like to think this but what movie do you nominate Sidney Poitier for this year? (laughs) Do you nominate him for to Sir with love? Do you nominate him for guess who's coming to dinner or do you nominate him for in the heat of the night? Because he deserves it for all of them. I would say it would have been a battle between him and Rod Steiger. If it had been best actor, I think he's a better actor in this than, well, no, he and Rod Steiger are both pretty much on par with each other. I just like his character more. (laughs) I'll just be, that's my own bias coming in to make my decision. I just like his character more. Um, Mm. But he and Rod Steiger both do a fantastic job in this. Um, He does a great job in To Start Up With Love. I think he's more of a supporting actor in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, But... Why so? But why is the Monsignor uh, uh, nominated and not him? I don't get it. I think it's I, I think it's because it's like, what do we do for Sidney Poitier this year? It's like everything. It's like he should just win all of the awards because he's in all of the good movies. Um, that being said, I do like that Rod Steiger was nominated for this one, um, and I like that I like that he won. You know, because I kind of want to see this movie win everything. <laughs> We don't really have a lot of women in this movie. As good as Lee Grant is, you know, we didn't <laughs> we didn't know until uh, the seventies when Beatrice Strait won a Best Supporting Actress for being in a movie for like eight minutes and just being awesome um, that you could do that. As much as I love her in this, I don't think that she's really she doesn't do much to support going from point A to point B in the story. Um, she just adds a threat which probably could have been added by anybody. It's just cool that it was a woman that did it. Um, so, yeah, I think this, you know, I think this, and it did win adapted screenplay, which is fantastic. Um, it, it, I do think that it should have possibly one direction because these, the, the rest of, you know, like I said, if it, he or Arthur Penn could have won for putting, for having a movie with putting somebody naked being obscured by a window frame. <laughs> um, there's interesting things in this movie. And this movie starts out racy. You know, it starts out real racy. You've got this naked woman, you've got this murder. This is not what we're used to. This is not the the you know historical epic we're used to or the musical we're used to or the you know this is this is signaling a change in the climate of creativity that we are ready to talk about sexism we're ready to talk about racism we're ready to talk about what is wrong with this country and one of the major things that is wrong with this country is that we allow inept racist police forces to remain in business essentially that's one of the that's one of the worst things about this country is that we let people be cops like this when we know that there are good cops like the ones in Philadelphia. (laughs) Um, I think that uh, 
when Quincy Jones did a fantastic job in this. I'm shocked he wasn't nominated for that. Um, and, you know, this really doesn't need anything like um, costume design or art direction or something like that. It was filmed on location. It's just what people are wearing right now. So, um, you know, it does, you know, it, it wins for best sound and I'm kind of surprised it won for best sound because you had things like Camelot and Dr. Doolittle where, you know, Dr. Doolittle's got to, it's got to have dialogue from humans and animals. I mean, that, that takes some sound direction. That takes some sound editing. It does. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised it won this for that, but it does have those wonderful little things that are sound like no trains come this early. I mean, it does have stuff like that. So I get it, but yeah, absolutely. This should have been best picture hands, you know, hands down. It's like these, you know, all of these movies, you know, Bonnie and Clyde graduate and guess who's coming to dinner are a close second. And Dr. Doolittle's like third, you know, after that, like Dr. Doolittle is definitely the last one I would pick. Um, But I think this far and away, is the best movie of the year. I would have loved to have seen um, this get best director. I would love to see, I would love to see Jewison get best director. I would also like to mention mm-hmm. that um, a production assistant on this movie was uh, Hal Ashby, who went mm-hmm. on to become a director specifically directed the movie Harold and Maude. So just wanted to give a little shout out to Hal Ashby. Um, but I think the biggest crime this year, the absolute biggest crime this year is that Sidney Poitier was, was in three of the best movies ever made and definitely three of the best movies made in this year, but he got no recognition from the Academy for any of them. Mm, yes, that was definitely a major, major oversight for sure. Zan. And Rachel, do you think in the heathen night deserved to win best picture? Oh, man, this is tough. Like I said, this year is, this year is stacked. Uh, and just the sheer amount of movies that I had to watch for the show this week. <laughs> I watched seven. Wow. So I watched all of the nominees except for Dr. Doolittle. Um, <laughs> and then I also watched uh, To Serve With uh, Love and Valley of the Dolls. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, which, it, you know, Valley of the Dolls, campy, uh yeah, I, I was, from what I understand, it's considered one of those, you know, so bad people love it type movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dig John Williams's first nomination for scoring. Uh, so the start. Was he, of Johnny? Yeah, was he so. Johnny in that? I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think he's credited as Johnny on that. I'll have to double check. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but the start of an illustrious career. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so... Um, oh, and I also watched Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, so... <laughs> which... That movie's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a fun musical. I mean, it's Julie Andrews, which you can't go wrong, and Mary Tyler Moore. It's Julie Andrews and Mary Tyler Moore uh, in a musical together, uh, which somehow Julie Andrews looks younger in this movie than she did in The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, which were several years before this. <laughs> the woman's amazing. Um, uh, to Serve With Love, I think, is the 
I don't want to say weakest, but for lack of a better, weakest of Poitier's movies from this year. Um, it's very sister act without the singing. True. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so it, it it was kind of predictable where the movie where the movie was going to go. Um, but it's it's cute, and Poitier still does uh, gives a, a great performance. Um, uh, so, um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, the the the, the fact that yeah, you know, those two are like real life. You know, it, it's not a made up story. <laughs> the the things that they show, I mean, the show they took some creative license, but I mean, their their true life story is just kind of like, wow, you know. <laughs> but you know, it was the Dust Bowl. It was the Great Depression. You know, people were starving, and you know, they what they did best was point guns at people. And it's just eventually they started to actually pull the trigger. Uh, so. <laughs> um oh but uh yeah there's some uh in uh good acting in there uh you know uh between uh warren Beatty and and faye dunaway um and then gene hackman is as clyde's brother and then the first his one of his first screen roles uh Future, Water. yes, future star of uh, many a Mel Brooks movie, uh, <laughs> Gene Wilder, <laughs> being very Gene Wilder. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> you want one of those burgers? Those burgers look so good in that scene. I don't know why. Yeah. I think they look delicious. Yeah. Um, the The Graduate was one of those movies where I have seen it completely out of sequence. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those where I just, you know, it'd be on TV or it'd be where, you know, pot, I'd come a stumble across it and it'd be different parts. And now it's like, now I finally get to see it from beginning to end in the order it's intended. Um, it's, it is creepy <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, most of the people in that movie need their head examined. <laughs> uh they all need therapy um it, for one form or another um but there, there's some per- superb acting in there it's some great editing using some cuts to, to to get you know the the story to move the timeline along um you know great great soundtrack simon garfungal uh <laughs> so um but oh, man, I'm, st- I'm even right now. I'm still kind of torn because I really, really liked Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, you know, it's very, so it's very, you know, it's, it's very similar themes, but it's just not on a biggest scale. You know, it's two families coming together. Um, where half of the parental units are completely supportive of their children and the other half of the parental units are being sticks in the mud uh, and being, you know, always thought that they were quote unquote woke. Uh, 
uh, and realizing that, no, I'm not as non-prejudicial as I thought I was. That woke is woke and come to my house. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it's also coming from a place of, I know that if my kid gets into this situation, they're going to have an uphill battle. And that means my kid is going to get hurt and I'm a parent and I don't want to see my kid get hurt. True. That's where, that's where they're, you know, a lot of it's coming from. Um, which is very tropey. You know, it's like, I, I would, you know, you get these parents are like, I'm so determined not to see my kid get hurt that I don't realize I'm hurting my kid by trying to protect them from getting hurt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) and there's some, it's, there's a fantastic performances in there. Um, you know, Catherine Hepburn, it, probably one of my absolute favorite scenes of any of her films is when she's firing the gal from the gallery. Because <laughs> <laughs> the gal comes over and uh, because she had, she had met, you know, the daughter's fiance at the gallery and, you know, just had to find out more and then goes off and she's like, I can't believe your daughter would do something so stupid, you know. Uh, just obviously being way more racist than uh, than Catherine Hepburn's character ever realized that she was. She's like the the speech that she gives her as a roundabout way to to fire her is beautiful. I love it. Uh, <laughs> it's no wonder that Catherine Hepburn won Best Actress uh, this particular year because it's a great performance uh, of hers. Um, and I think Potier, I think, shows a lot more range in emotion in Guess Who's Coming to, get, to Dinner. I think that's what I appreciated because, you know, as as badass as Mr. Tibbs is, he is very, he's just very, I want to do this job because I've been forced to, you know, my chief is you know, essentially twisting my arm over the phone. I'm here. I'm, you know, I know I'm good at this. I might as well do my job the best I can and I'll get out, you know, the sooner I get this case solved, the sooner I can get the hell out of here and back to Philadelphia. And really only in the, the moment when the, he's at Gillespie's house, uh, where they kind of show some vulnerability with each other. Um, Tibbs is, is very, he's got, armor on to mm-hmm. protect himself um which considering the situation is completely understandable um but i you know sydney uh you know potier he's such a fantastic an- actor and he has i know he's capable of such range and he shows that more and guesses he could be very serious he could be very he's very he could be very sad he has moments where he's laughing and cracking jokes uh you know, with with his you know fiance and uh, you know being very nervous of meeting the parents, and then very nervous when his parents are getting ready to show up. Um, he just he just uh, I I like his his ability to show off what he's capable of doing as an actor in that movie more and than he, in the heat of the night. I think. Yeah, and he's the only one in that. He's the only character in that movie that can see everybody's point. He yes. sees everybody's side. He's like, oh, no, I get why your parents are weirded out. And yeah. 
he, and he, and just like, just like in any of the heat of the night, he is the smartest one out of everybody there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> I don't know. I think this is one of those where it's like, I, I'm pretty happy with the way it went, but if it had gone to guess who's coming to dinner instead, I would have been happy with that too. Mm, yeah. This is definitely one of those years indeed, Rachel, because I mean, I want to start out by saying that it seems like uh, we are in agreement here because I very much enjoyed all five movies for different reasons. Because obviously seeing the legendary duo of Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty together as the most famous real gangster couple was just too perfect <laughs> for words. And Except now they're fa- th- those two are famous for a whole other reason. Yes. Yeah. Sadie and Dunaway are. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And also, you know, you mentioned the supporting cast from Gene Hackman and Michael J. Pollard. They almost steal the show from our leads. And of course, I couldn't but love hearing, you know, ha- hosting a country music radio show, Foggy Mountain Breakdown by Flattened Scruggs throughout this film. It made me very happy. This is probably also the best version of Dr. Doolittle ever made on film as much as Rex Harrison is the guy that he is, but he fits the part to a T. And I just got lost in the whimsy of this comedic musical. The Graduate, a.k.a. I Had Sex With Your Mother Like A Lot, once again shows how director Mike Nichols really gets the best performances from his actors, as he had with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I enjoyed every moment of this film, as I had before when it came to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And then there's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which... Like you were saying, Rachel, in a different way, it deals with the same issues that our Best Picture winner does. And it does so with great panache and style and is, of course, of its time. But in this case, as in the other nominees, you have splendid performances from all concerned, especially uh, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Sidney Poitier. It was just fabulous. In conclusion, I am more than happy within the Heat of the Night winning. I guess, though, If I have to be super picky, I maybe would have given it to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner because, I don't know, it just really grabbed me for so many reasons for the the cast and the story and just everything. But, yeah, this is one of the years where I'm like, okay, you want to give it to In the Heat of the Night? That's totally cool because we had some – we had a very stacked uh, Oscar year this time indeed. Mm -hmm. So let's get to ratings then. Rachel, what do you give this uh, In the Heat of the Night out of 10? Uh, yeah, this is a really solid movie. Um, fantastic acting. Um, it's a fantastic score. And, <laughs> you know, you can't go wrong with, uh, with Mr. Jones there. Um, uh, yeah, the theme song sung by Ray Charles. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you get any more Southern? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 the, the, the themes and everything there are fortunately or unfortunately still very relevant. This is again, one of those movies that we need to pull like a clockwork orange and just strap certain people down <laughs> with their eyes pried open and watch and just show some of these films on a loop until they figure this shit out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, it, it, I mean, it's a great overall movie. Um, the, 
I think the only thing I would fault it is some of the sound editing. Mm. There was a some some bits where like I think like Sidney Poitier is like like sitting at a chair and he moves and like the his his the like the fabric in his suit like rustles really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is supposed to be Mississippi in the South during the heat of the summer. Where are the cicadas? Yes, <laughs> no bugs anywhere. Where are the bug noises? Major fail as far as the sound design is concerned. <laughs> but that's very nitpicky. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, because they did not film this in Mississippi, they filmed it in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Potier absolutely did not want to go to the South to film. Um, apparently there had been a, an incident with him and... Um, Harry, Harry Belafonte, where they had gone down south for something, and they got threatened by the KKK. Oh, jeez. Also, a, also a damn treasure, Harry Belafonte. Just had to say, yeah, that. yeah, uh, yeah. Apparently, they were almost killed by members oh, of the my. KKK. Uh, so he absolutely refused to film in the south if they could help it. So they ended up filming in Illinois. Um, although they did have to go to Tennessee to do the cotton plantation because sure. there were no cotton plantations in Illinois, even in the <laughs> 1960s. Uh, but apparently there still were in Tennessee, uh, but they got into Tennessee and filmed as, uh, all that stuff as quickly as possible and got back out. Cause even there, there were threats against Poitier and like, he was sleeping with like a gun under his pillow while they were in Tennessee. Um, so maybe the fact that it was filmed in the Midwest and we do get some cicada, noises at night in the summer but maybe it's just not as profound as it would be in mississippi uh so i don't know uh <laughs> again nitpicky but you know any kid who spent that time outside in the middle in, in the middle of the summer after it's gotten dark you know you know those noises that you expect to hear and they're not there Yep, them uh, crickets and frogs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Cicadas, whatever. Um, so, but uh, overall, a, a fantastic movie. Um, and glad that I finally got a, a chance to watch this because I, I, you know, the I that line they call me Mister Tibbs, you know, is so iconic. Um, and it's a it's a fantastic movie, and everyone needs to watch this at least once um do a double header this and guess who's coming to dinner uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah i'm gonna give this one an eight and a, eight and a half definitely great and yes i definitely thought of you rachel knowing how much you love disney and since pumba gets the gets the phrase they call me mr pig i thought that was fabulous (laughs) (laughs) nice call back to this film and zan what do you give this film this gets a nine and a half for me um it's so good it just really it really only loses one point for uh um I'll pull this factory if that Negro cop doesn't keep on this case. <laughs> it was trying. It was trying, but I have to, I have to get, I have to have it lose a point for that one. Yeah. I, I really love this movie. Um, I think it should be required viewing for everybody every year, just to remember um, that uh, we have to stop being no damn good. And um, 
I feel like it should be required viewing for anybody in law enforcement because this is a great example of there are sometimes easy ways out. There are sometimes easy explanations. They are almost never the right one. Um, yeah, you might think it's you might think it's the guy who you know you might think it's the petty thief who has the wallet, but that doesn't add up. And you might think it's the the gambling cop who deposited a bunch of money, which was around the same time amount around the same amount of money that the guy had before he died. It's not that. You might think that it's his, you know, business rival. It's not that. It, it's a, it, it requires police work. It can't just be your assumptions and your preconceived notions and your stereotypes. So I think there's so many lessons to be learned from this movie. So many things to remember about what it means to be human and what it means to be a, a decent person. And one of the things that it means to be a decent person is to know when to admit that you're wrong. And like... One of the only people who, and the only person that does that out loud in this is Mr. Tibbs. And, um, I just, and like we said, they're both, this one, you know, the Oscar nominated Poitier movies, this one and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner are both excellent stories that talk about race but this one, the stakes are the stakes are just higher. But both movies, I think, should be required watching for anybody, especially anybody who fancies themselves. I'm not a racist, but um, mm -hmm. you need to watch these movies and check yourself. Are you not racist because it just doesn't come up, or do you have deep rooted biases, and are you benefiting from a from a racist system and just not even noticing it? I mean, it really ma makes you think about what race means in our culture. And so it's a, yeah, this is a fantastic movie. It's, it's almost perfect. Right. Well, I'm actually uh, with, with Rachel here. I'm actually going to also give this an eight and a half out of 10. I thoroughly enjoyed this film and uh, it did make me want to go and watch you should we say episodes two and three of the trilogy so uh and I'm definitely going to <coughs> probably end up rewatching this at some point for sure. So, Thoroughly enjoyed it. Definitely see why it deserves its place within the pantheon of great movies. So we talked about this film, of course, and dissected it. And should you folks wish to join us in one of our discussions or share your thoughts on the films we discuss here, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, where you can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we also appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts and you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating and or review. We very much appreciate it. Also, if you'd like to hear us discuss your favorite Oscar nominee or a film that you feel deserve to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can join our wonder family of patrons on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash goldstandardoscars. You'll also get to unlock our reviews of such films as the OG Star Wars trilogy, some films from the Indiana Jones franchise, Singing in the Rain, and many more. So feel free to join our Golden Army by heading over to patreon.com slash goldstandardoscars. A big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support. So, Zan, starting with you, when you're not here in the Gold Standard Theatre, where can folks find you? Well, sometimes I'm in the Drunk Cinema Theatre with mm -hmm. uh, our friend Charles Skaggs, uh, where we enjoy our favourite adult beverages and watch our favorite movies and discuss them as they happen as a running commentary. Um, 
And then when we're sober, Charles and I are in Ghostwood Forest, where we do Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, where we discuss all things Twin Peaks and David Lynch related and all things tangentially Twin Peaks and David Lynch related. We're currently doing a series of shows where we discuss our favorite movies that feature our favorite Twin Peaks actors. And our next movie is going to be The Phantom featuring Billy Zane, who was in Twin Peaks. And I can be found on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok as Udinax19 and on Facebook as Zan Sprouse. Fabulous. And what about you, Rachel? Uh, you can find me with the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. We are a weekly pop culture, geek culture, entertainment podcast where we talk about all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective. We'll give you found wherever you find your podcasts and at the fiveishfangirls.com where you can connect with all of our social media accounts and my personal ones as well. Awesome. And when it comes to me, folks, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarettes radio show where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more information about that, visit our website, whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I do host Happiness and Darkness, a superhero movie podcast. We discuss all superhero movies under the sun. And speaking of Charles Skaggs, him and I are going to be wrapping up Hawkeye, the latest MCU TV show on the Fandom Zone, as of the recording of this podcast this Sunday. And uh, if you will want to hear us talking about, here, talking about uh, Titans and Doom Patrol, you can do so by heading on over to Titan Talk, the Titans podcast. And speed things to come on this show, next time our first review for 2022, we will be discussing the 1968 Carol Reed film, Oliver. So, Rachel and Zan, you know, 40 years of movies we've covered in, uh, thus far. And, of course, uh, in the last uh, review of the year, uh, it was obviously uh, such a joy to be doing this podcast with you. And I'm so happy that we were doing this, for sure. And when it comes to our first review of 2022 and Oliver, any hot takes when it comes to uh, this musical? I well, only know the version with the dogs. <laughs> and the cat company is such a great so it's a it's a better movie frankly um, yeah. why I, should i worry exactly yep yeah. okay so i have a i'm gonna have opinions about next year and uh i don't think words can really do it justice so um i'll just give you a little taste of what you'll probably hear me talking a lot about next time so <laughs> Wait for it. Yes. Yeah, we're going to be we're going to be talking about what should have won and I think we all know that I just showed my hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I guess I guess yes. We do love Billy Joel, I will say that for sure and uh, but uh, I guess it's going to be a very interesting conversation indeed for our first episode out of the gate in 2022. That's it, of course, uh, folks. Thanks, as always, for the show and supporting us. We will see you next time in 2022 with Oliver. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people.